G'day, mate. 40 here. I was just reading the Atlantic magazine this morning and had an article on Christianity that grabbed my attention. So it uh, talks about a less religious America is a more polarized America. So in some times and places and circumstances, right, more Christianity will lead to a more polarized situation. Other times and circumstances and places, less Christianity will lead to a more polarized situation. But uh, this particular professor, Daniel Williams, writes in The Atlantic today that uh, a less religious America, a less Christian America will be a more polarized America and that declines in church attendance have made the rural Republican regions of the country even more Republican and even more stridently Christian nationalist. So about half of Christian nationalists, according to this article, virtually never go to church. Right, the wave of states bending during their affirming care this year, the adoption of proud Christian nationalists as an identity by politicians such as Marjorie Taylor Greene, even markets t-shirts with that slogan. It's not what many people might have expected at a time when church attendance is declining. So for many people, Christianity is simply a way of expressing their identity. It says, you know, who I am, where my loyalties lie. It doesn't actually mean church attendance. So with people like uh, Nick Fuentes and a lot of other people on the distant right, uh, Christianity is a much more attractive marker for the type of politics that they want to pursue than something that is more explicit, say, a racial nationalism going on. So people hold on to their politics when they stop attending church. Liberal Christians in the Northeast, they stay liberal when they drop off their church's membership roles. Conservative Christians in Alabama and Indiana stay conservative even when they're no longer part of a congregation. In fact, people become even more entrenched in their political views when they stop attending church services. So churches have a reputation in some circles as promoting hyper-politicization, but they can also be depolarizing institutions because being part of a religious community, it forces you to get along with other people, including those with different political views, and it will often channel your efforts into charitable work or forms of leadership or volunteering within the church that have little to do with politics. When you leave the church community, that removes often those moderating forces, and it opens the door to more extreme forms of uh, politics and nationalism. So Christian nationalism attracts at least 50% of the adherents to Christian nationalism almost never go to church themselves. And so without church community, which in many cases has acted as a moderating effect on people's politics, uh, politics has become much more extreme. Okay, we've got a clip here from... Gavin McGuinness and uh, Anthony Camilla, what the left doesn't understand about race relations. Just understand about racism. The whole like one drop thing, yeah. which is that it's the basis for oh, American okay. racism. Mm -hmm. And it's why we're talking about it every day in America. It's based on the one drop theory, which is Kamala Harris, Salman Rushdie, Ben Carson, ghetto blacks like K, what's his name, in um, the South Bronx, K Flock, who just killed someone in a rival housing ben project. Ben Carson. Oops. They're all the same to racists. Yeah. <clears throat> right, right. So Same the reason fucking... Kamala Harris is a black VP, even though her formative years were spent in Montreal and her mother's Indian and her black dad wasn't around, and even her black dad was a plantation owner, his, his family owned slaves. It's hilarious. The reason those people can all pretend to be fucking young Wayne, whatever his name is, Lil Wayne, is because died-in-the-wool racists follow the one-drop theory. Yeah. 
But the problem with that theory is, and it's a theory, yeah. and it's it's the backbone of American discourse today. Uh-huh. No one thinks that. No one really thinks. Like, I mean, like I'm sure there's 17 a few people. 17 right. people in yeah. Mobile, Alabama. There might be an old 90 year old man yeah. who you bring over Kamala Harris, and he's oh, in yeah. his chair, and he, he looks like he's from Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, he's yeah. Like, we're looking here. And you're like, Dad, she's a lawyer. Oh, my God. Or sorry, great-granddad. Yeah. She's a lawyer. She, she, she went to school in Montreal. She's the vice president of the United States. I don't care what the fuck I'm going to do. Meanwhile, he talks black. Right, right. I don't understand. <laughs> I think it's the southern accent. Yeah, it's southern accent. You know, they have a lot in common. So we've all been lumped in with that dude in the chair. Yeah. And it's like, that's illogical. We're just trying to have racial discussions. Right. And point out things that are happening. And, you know, uh, some things are very bad and they need to be pointed out. But. Uh, yeah, we're not like, we don't, see, we don't see Kamala Harris and, or Neil deGrasse Tyson and be like, well, looky here. Looky here. Someone thinks he's an astrophysicist. You got us one of them highfalutin. Well, well, look at you with your skulls in the sky. <laughs> Tell you what, I'd like to put you in a rocket and send you the fuck <laughs> off to Mars, boy. So we've all been lumped into this thing, and all these black aristocrats can say, like, yes, I know that I'm, I'm with you. I went to Eton. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm treated by the masses like a common, everyday thug. And you're <laughs> yeah, like, no, yeah. you're no, not. No, you're not. That's a lie. You're really not. I got, I got off the train today, walking up from Penn Station, and then... 7th Avenue, which is a fucking nightmare. That block is getting worse and worse. I have to dodge, stick and move. I'm going, there's that one in the wheelchair, the crowd. Are talking about right here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah right here. Brutal. And then there's drug dealers. There's people that are just, this one woman, she's disgusting. And she's eating something out of one of those cardboard things like you get french fries in. But it was some form of it's not french fries. No. And, and then she goes, it's like oh, ham she found. And spits this wow. bone with meat on it. Dude, I'm like, I'm going over selfies. I'm like, I don't think I can eat. I think she just fucked my whole eating up, I can't. So I'm just looking at go. And then there was this gentleman, a black dude. Oh, African American. Suit, tie, nice, uh, uh, short hair, his own. It wasn't fun. And you said, You're just as bad as her. Exactly. Because you got the same drop, exactly. motherfucker. One drop, motherfucker. I don't, you think you're special? You ain't special, motherfucker. He's got like a, a not a briefcase, but like a portfolio thing. Yeah. He's walking. Oh, full of crack. Walking up. <laughs> and I thought that, I just thought, like, There you go. It's that easy. It's that easy. Just. And I'm not talking everyone has to have the suit and tie and the thing. But don't be that. There's a lot in between right. that and that. Yeah. Just try to be more than halfway. I guarantee you that. If there was a young, a young liberal, like a, a 28-year-old liberal at NYU, and he sat down with you, me, and a 66-year-old black man <laughs> from Harlem. Oh, shit. It would be us three. Oh, yeah. Just going, what the fuck did you just say? Yeah, yeah. We, Listen, motherfucker. Yeah. This is the way it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the old black dude would be just as uh, upset with the way things are going. <laughs> yeah. That's a great synonym for racism. Yeah, yeah. Just as upset. I'm not racist, I'm upset. That's a t-shirt. I'm not, I'm not racist, I'm upset. I'm upset. Oh, no. Oh, your Gino's already got it up on his side. Shit! Fuck this guy. He's fat. Always. No, when I was coming here, this white woman, uh, liberal, she'll be happy to hear. Um, last show, last week, I was coming up the stairs, and this is on my getter, because I'm not on Twitter, um, and there was a yes. woman who had just been vomiting all over the stairs. So she's lying there, her tits are hanging out, she has piercing sewer tit. Holy shit. And she's just, she's got a dollar bill in her hand. Did she make Chrissy Mayer's show <laughs> that day? Because she was supposed to. <laughs> and she's just like, she's leaned up over the stairs and just been like. Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah, you got to <laughs> And then she's like, I got to hit the hay, boys. This is, this is heroin is strong. Oh, shit. And she just lay there with her crumpled up $1 bill and her fucking cornmeal. <laughs> with her little tits hanging out with piercings through them. Whoa. It's like, this is... Jafaka? <laughs> her pussy tasted so disgusting. Just, I got a heroin buzz off of It was urine. The, the urine had soaked into the pubes. Oh, so as I'm eating around, my nose is in the pubes. Right, right. And I'm sensing the... the just urine. It's soaked it, it up. Uric acid? Yes. It just soaked it up. Inhaling that. Oh, like a sponge. God. Like a big woolly after, pillow. After about half an hour, I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out of here. I can't do that. I don't care if you don't wake up. I can't do this a minute longer. And then 15 minutes right. after that, I then, then I left. Yeah, then I left. And the police were like, finally. And I'm like, mind your own fucking business. <laughs> you know?
Okay, some uh, street talk there from Gavin, <laughs> Gavin and Andy. Okay, so how did we get to this state where people decide their you know, meaning in life and, and their morality just from what happens between their ears? Like, how did we get to this referential moral state where there's just so much lack of meaning, lack of purpose in people's lives? They feel so disconnected from other people. They have you know, reduced sense of right and wrong. And uh, perhaps the best explanation comes from a philosopher, Charles Taylor, a man of the left. He wrote a 2007 book called A Secular Age. And he talks about the contrast between the, the, mond- the modern bounded self, protected, the, the buffered self, and the poorer self of the earlier, more enchanted world. So a poorer sense self means that you know, I feel affected by everything that's going on around me, uh, whether from you know, evil spirits to angels to sexual perversity to other forms of perversity and moral degeneration that uh, that affects me. The modern liberal sense is that we're buffered, that we can create meaning and purpose and decide right and wrong from within our own minds. And so the traditional sense of self, right, the vulnerable self, right, the source of our most powerful and important emotions, the source of meaning in life and morality is outside of us, right? It's outside of our mind. There is a clear boundary, right, for, for the modern, right? There's a clear boundary between us on the inside and what's going on outside. So I can see that boundary is a buffer. I see that things don't need to get to me, right? There's a sense that I am a master of meanings for me. But in the traditional sense of life, meaning out, exists outside of one. You can construct a good life only by conforming to the hero system of your community. So for Christian nationalists, all right, and for all sorts of other people, for, for trads in general, meaning is not something that you just decide between your two ears. Morality is not just something you decide between your two ears. It's something outside of you that you strive towards. And uh, David Brooks, Atlantic article, decries our morally inarticulate world. But what world is he thinking of? We don't, we don't lack for moral articulation. We have all sorts of smart people articulating right and wrong all the time. What we primarily lack is social cohesion and social trust. So here are some very smart people articulating right and wrong on the Trump indictment. So the idea that he'll somehow be silenced is a fantasy. I'm Howard Kurtz, and this is Media Buzz. With a federal judge setting a March 4th trial date for the Justice Department's indictment on election interference charges, that's a day before Super Tuesday, the commentators have very mixed views. Joe Biden isn't even committing to debating Donald Trump. This isn't a battle of ideas. There's no effort at persuasion. This is the removal of a political opponent through brute force, through handcuffs and ballot gimmickry. Well, I think Dom, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee because I haven't seen the willingness, the fortitude among the other uh, candidates to really take him on and make a thing out of this unprecedented um, turn of events. These four indictments, the fact that he was probably going to be in prison. Prosecutors are attempting to throw Trump in prison for interfering with an election. Well, looks like they themselves are looking to have an impact on an election. Unless, of course, you believe these dates are just simply by accident and a, and a mere coincidence. I mean, if Donald Trump doesn't want to have his trial start the day before Super Tuesday, the simple solution is don't commit crimes um, so that you're facing a criminal trial uh, the day before Super Tuesday. 
Joining us now to analyze the coverage, Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief of The Federalist and a Fox News contributor. And in San Diego, Laura Fink, head of Rebel Communications. Molly, do you agree that Donald Trump being tied up in courtrooms for weeks, well, hardly a great situation, is not going to slow his march to the nomination? Yeah, well, clearly it seems to be helping him, not just in the Republican primary, but also with the general election votes. You had the Wall Street Journal poll showing that just yesterday. And so it's not just Republicans who are more inclined to favor him, but independents and moderates as well. And the reason why is because people do not view these as legitimate prosecutions. If you're not a Democrat partisan, you tend to view this as a political prosecution that is scarier than any kind of election contest. And so it does seem to be helping. Laura, uh, the general election may well be a different story. You've got obviously much Okay, so I agree with that analysis. I, I think that most of these indictments are you know, bogus. I, I think some of them stand up. But uh, I saw a comment on, on Twitter that, that grabbed my attention. All right, it's by someone named Fisher King. He says, uh, musing on the fact that no major figure went to prison following the 2008 financial crisis, Authorities took literal interpretations of statutes, said no case could be made. But to indict Trump, we are using ancient statutes, we are using RICO law designed for the mafia. When they want you, they can get very creative, they can bend the law any way they want. When they want to protect you, they say the law just isn't there, their hands are tied. Well, yeah, even objective law is always enforced and prosecuted by human beings who are subjective. But the uh, 2008 global financial crisis was not primarily caused by illegal behavior, right? It was primarily caused by the United States government mandating that banks lend to people who are manifestly unqualified to receive mortgage loans. And then when those people started defaulting on their loans, the whole system went bankrupt and the global financial system that uh, used to make bets on American mortgage uh, back securities, they were very stable until the effect of government constantly promoting loans to people with protected minority status who were manifestly not qualified to be able to pay back such loans. That's what trashed the global financial system. So all sorts of bad things can happen with the consent of the law. We have a rabbinic commentator, Nachmanides, he says you can be disgusting with, with the consent of the Torah and you can be disgusting with the consent of civil law. So, in fact, our civil law has constrained police from doing their jobs. We're, we're allowing murderers out. We're allowing you know, bad people out of prison. We're not prosecuting people. And so, through legal means, we are trashing our country. Right? When terrible things happen, right, it's not necessarily because laws are being broken. Right? You can do horrible things with the consent of the law. And with the consent of the law, Donald Trump is being prosecuted in many cases on bogus bases. On some cases, I think some of the indictments are solid. So the third one, the one for mishandling classified documents, I think there's, there's a solid basis for that. But uh, the other indictments seem overly political. And it's amusing. The New York Times runs this big article lamenting what's going on in Bangladesh. Quietly crushing a democracy from within, millions on trial in Bangladesh. Most active rivals to the country's ruling party face dozens, even hundreds of court cases each, paralyzing the opposition as a crucial election approaches. Not a word in here about how some similar things are going on in the United States, right, where Donald Trump is being distracted by all these indictments. He has to spend a great deal of money to fight these indictments. 
right? The most likely nominee from the opposition party is being crushed by Morfair, right? So some similar things going on in Bangladesh, but no sense of irony on the part of the, the New York Times. Let's get a little bit more here from Media Buzz. Six months to the voting or so. Uh, let me play for both of you uh, what the former president said in an interview with Glenn Beck. And if you're president again, will you lock people up? The answer is you have no choice because they're doing it to us. And I never hit Biden as hard as I could have. And then I heard he was trying to indict me, and it was him that was doing it. These are sick people. These are evil people. Molly, Donald Trump and his loyalists believe these indictments are a result of the weaponization of law enforcement, and I know you agree. But when he says he has no choice if he wins back the White House but to prosecute his political opponents, are we in for an endless cycle of payback? Well, the interesting thing to do is look back at 2016, where the Republican base wanted Hillary Clinton held accountable for clear crime crimes. She had set up a private server. She destroyed tens of thousands of emails in the middle of an investigation. But when Trump won election, he explicitly said, we don't, you know, we just have to let people handle things at the ballot box. We're not going to prosecute my primary political opponent. The response was the Russia collusion hoax. Two impeachments, now 91 indictments from Democrat prosecutors up and down the eastern seaboard. The question isn't whether Republicans will be responding in some way. It'll be, it's going to be what else will they be doing to try to preserve the country and not be a place where politicized prosecutions are the order of the day for how to handle political disagreements. Well, I do have to point out that when Donald Trump says any. Okay, question from the chat. Will the Trump saga end in a bang or a whimper? Well, think about how most of our lives will end. Most of our lives will not end in a bang. They'll end in a whimper. So I suspect that the Trump saga will end with a whimper. I'd, I'd put the odds at uh, 10 to 1, right? The odds are uh, more than 90% in my estimation that the Trump saga will end with a whimper rather than with a bank. That's just the nature of humanity. We're just incredibly vulnerable people. I would bet the odds are more than 90% that the Joe Biden era will end with a whimper rather than a bang. Very few eras end as the JFK era ends with a, with a bang rather than, than a whimper. Uh, Luke Cross says, I thought the Trump saga would be snuffed out in 2020. Then January 6th happened. Yeah. There is a substantial portion of the American population who feels that Donald Trump is on their side. That Donald Trump will, will fight for them, that Donald Trump might even win for them. And even people on the left, such as Simon Cooper in the Financial Times column this, this weekend, he says if Trump is reelected, he will be a far more consequential president than he was the first time around. So conservatives have assembled about 50,000 names to take over top civil service jobs and and bend the civil service much more in a Trumpian direction. So the first time around, Trump was largely hamstrung by, one, his own lack of abilities as a leader, two, very effective opposition springing largely from the civil service, the media, and the Democratic Party. Joe Biggs got 17 years in the big house. I bet you my left nut Trump will not pardon him. I don't think I even know who... Uh, Joe Biggs is, oh, is he one of the Proud Boy leaders? So I, I don't shed any tears for people who've gone to prison for committing crimes on January 6th. I, I would like all, all rioters to, to be punished because I believe so much in the rule of law. 
back to Molly Hemingway. Media largely ignoring these posts because they don't like what he's saying. Yeah, the media are continuing their operation as co-partisans with the Democrat Party. So being able to use social media is an important aspect. But just to some of these points, yeah. the Department of Justice is also something that a lot of Americans view as compromised, not just because of the way that they're going against the primary Republican politician in the yes. country, but also the way that they are protecting the Biden family. This is a major issue. And actually, Joe Biden did use the New York Times on April 2nd, 2022, to funnel a message to Merrick Garland that he did want Donald Trump prosecuted. He had more than enough opportunity to claim that that was an inaccurate telling of his viewpoint, said by, of course, anonymous sources within the White House. And he didn't do that. What and did so he say? Or he said he... that he wanted his uh, primary political opponent to be handled, he wanted him to be prosecuted for, uh, and he, he's actually said a lot of stuff to that end. He said it before he was inaugurated, he said it right after he was inaugurated publicly, that he did want this to be done. It is being done. It's being done by his Department of Justice, which has is embroiled in a horrific scandal for covering up the Biden family corruption. Now, most of Donald Trump's problems are caused by Donald Trump, right? The way that Donald Trump behaved after he clearly lost the 2020 election was irresponsible, was unconscionable, was bad for the country. I think these indictments are similarly bad for the country because they'll re encourage Republicans now to retaliate and try to hamstrung and take out Democratic nominees using similar tactics. But Trump brought these troubles on himself. He, he was you know, reckless. He was childish. He was self-centered. He conducted himself with you know, little regard for the, for the greater good but also Democrat prosecutors in New York and Atlanta. And so this is a real problem. I mean, totally apart from people's personal feelings about Donald Trump, this weaponization of the Department of Justice and other law enforcement and, and, and other aspects of our judicial system is a real crisis for a lot of Americans, regardless of their political. They don't, they don't want to be in a country well, that handles disputes this way. I haven't seen it outside of deep red Republicans make that one of their top three issues, Molly, but I do understand to parents at school board meetings. It is true that these courtrooms are going to be a scene of major campaigning, but that is because it appears that this is the main campaign strategy of Biden and the Democrats to focus on these things instead of how the economy is going, how the country is being run, how the war in Ukraine is being handled, what the border is like. It's clear that it is a campaign strategy, Laura, but I would disagree about whether that's so will uh, Joe Biden survive, presuming he wins re-election? Will he survive until 2029 in, as president of the United States in <laughs> seeming like he has, has some, some of his faculties? I, I'd say the odds are probably 50%. Uh, I, I would think that uh, the Democrats would encourage someone like uh, Gavin Newsom to run. I mean, Biden is not a particularly strong or appealing prospect. Right, back to this David Brooks article. And he, he talks about we live in this morally inarticulate world. But, I mean, that's not the world I see. I mean, progressives are telling you at every turn what you may or may not do, what you should and shouldn't eat, what you should and shouldn't smoke, where you should put your trash, your recyclables, your grass clippings, all for your own good. And this is from Ronnie Goodman's terrific work in progress, conservative claims of cultural oppression on the nature and origins of conservophobia. So liberals the drop of a Rolodex and come at you with a rotating hit squad of well-placed academics ready to pounce and opine just about anything having to do with you. The liberals are people trained practically from birth as an instant response team. The weaklings and the physical cowards who sought the safety of a sinecure, meaning tenure, instead of the mortal combat of life, 
but it is to get the still get the thrill of shooting inarticulate fish in a barrel. I think that's a pretty good description of the world that we're in right now. So we don't lack for moral articulation. Right, so if uh, conservatives are somehow primitive, as liberals accuse, if, if we're medieval, it's because our hero systems are less subtle. They may be tied around blood, maybe tied around soil, they may be tied around traditional understandings of the relationship of the human being to other people, to the tribe, to the nation, to, to the universe, and to, and to God. So left-wing hero systems tend to be a little more disguised, but this disguising is precisely the ethos of the disengaged, self-control, self-reflexivity. You can find all the meaning and purpose, right and wrong, morality that you need between your own two ears from the modern liberal perspective. So liberals essentially spiritualize all the impulses that they would prefer to associate with conservatives, and thereby they get to indulge in them under a veneer of sophistication. So you've got affirmative action, which serves as absolution ritual whereby white liberals beseech militant blacks to expiate America's original sin of racism. Right, so in the area of race, Americans have been conditioned by the news media and our elites into a rigid and unforgiving propriety. I mean, is there any area where we are more restrained, tight-lipped, careful about what we say, uh, particularly in public, you know, careful that anything that, that we say that gets out of a very narrow band of acceptable opinion when it comes to race can absolutely blow up in our face. So, yes, since the 1950s, race has replaced sex as the primary focus of America's moral seriousness. So we don't lack for moral seriousness. It's just from a traditional point of view, the moral seriousness is completely misplaced. Right? There's nothing inherently immoral about uh, racism, sexism, Islamophobia, homophobia, and the like. These are usually reflections of a healthy sense of bondedness with your in-group rather than something immoral. So moral seriousness right, is kind of the mirror image of what liberals oppose with conservatives and their moral seriousness about sex. So liberals have all sorts of hang-ups, not so much with sex, but with any words about race that uh, go off the sanctioned path. Right, so we've got social justice is a secularized morality of sin and redemption. Any opinion that might so much as resonate with racists, such as opposition to affirmative action, is treated as violation of a sacred taboo, even when it's entirely defensible on non-racist grounds. So liberalism is its own hero system, its own sanctioned path, and what many people who identify with Christian nationalism are doing is they're simply revolting, revolting against this dominance of the liberal left of all our major institutions. So liberals have these vague premonitions of erosion unraveling by the slightest perceived softening of anti-racist inhibitions. So they think that, ah, oh, people will just you know, turn to bloodlust and uh, civil war if we let up on political correctness in any way. So conservatives and people on the right refuse to accept liberal race discourse at face value because they sense that this is just a sophisticated pretense. It's, it's an opportunity to indulge in ecstasies of intellectualized liberal shame. It's an invitation to bask in all sorts of primitive emotions that would be decried as insophisticated and retrograde if expressed in less intellectual context on behalf of other causes.
Now, as part of the growing rule by experts that we have in this country, we have all sorts of normal human emotions, such as preference for one's in-group and, uh, say, preference for male-only spaces or preferences for a heterosexual identification for marriage, for a heterosexual military, all sorts of normal human emotions, primitive, primal emotions, preferences for, for particular blood and soil, they have been turned into pathologies. And one normal human emotion, sadness, has been also been turned into a pathology by our reigning elites, particularly in the psychiatric profession. And there was a terrific book published about this in 2007, The Loss of Sadness, How Psychiatry Transformed Normal Sorrow into Depressive Disorder. So whenever you experience a substantial loss, it would make sense that you would feel sad. You lose a friend, right? You lose an opportunity. You lose a dream, right? You, you lose a relationship. You lose a community. You, you lose a way of life, right? You lose, say, physical abilities. You're, you're reduced to, to bed by back pain. It would be completely normal for you to feel sad about that. But... After several weeks of this, psychiatrists will diagnose you with a disorder, with, with depression. Thoughts on Elon Musk possibly banning the ADL? Well, the Anti-Defamation League is in large parts a, a left-wing ethnic lobby, and it wants to regulate and has been very successful at regulating what is acceptable speech on social media platforms and in public spaces around the world. So Elon Musk bought Twitter primarily for the basis of restoring freedom of speech on Twitter. It seems to me he's done a, a pretty good job overall. And so it's understandable that anyone who supports free speech in public spaces is going to be opposed to the Anti-Defamation League. Right, here's a little bit more on rule by experts. Uh, it can start grading on people. <laughs> And for some, it has. Yes. And we right. know. We're aware. <laughs> talking, that's uh, Dennis Prager, Julie Hartman, talking about how it grades some people when they talk about how much they love each other. Well, for those of you who don't know, th this is actually preoccupying me. So very recently, and I'm sure all of you, certainly in the United States, are aware of the once in 80-something years, in other words, not since 1939 was there a tropical storm in Southern California, or maybe California. We, we don't get that. I mean, Florida gets it. The East Coast gets it. Other places. So people, namely the National Weather Service, the state of California, the county of Los Angeles, it was like COVID. Schools were shut down. Uh, uh, government offices were shut down. People were warned constantly, stay home unless it is an emergency. This is life-threatening. I have, I have a picture of the notice on my phone. Well, I attended a wedding that weekend. The, the warnings were for Sunday night. That Sunday night, I, I was to attend a wedding which I did. The groom told me, and he, to his great credit, he was not, you know, engaged in self-pity. He just noted 40 people. And I would say the entire number of people there was 100. Mm -hmm. So there would have been 140. 40 didn't, didn't come. Because of this hurricane. Right. So now what everybody listening and watching needs to understand is Sunday night, it rained in Southern California. That's all it did. There were no winds. Not lightning. Okay, so rain is not equal in its effects everywhere in the United States. Southern California is not designed for large amounts of rain. So 
this rainfall was trivial compared to other areas of the country that are much more equipped for, for dealing with heavy rainfalls. So I, I'm ambivalent about this story. Did Was there too many warnings? Were the warnings too severe with regard to this tropical storm? I stayed in. I stayed in all Sunday. I saw enough video of people driving around and getting stuck and, uh, you know, people having you know horrific results on the roads. I, I stayed in. Uh, sometimes your own common sense is superior to that, what the expert meteorologists and the experts in you know, public safety tell you, and sometimes it's not. From, from what, from that, my that, part that's an interesting point, right. And regularly in Southern California, there are heavier rainstorms. It was just raining. That was the entirety. It, now, there were parts outside of L.A. County where people were knee-deep in water. That's also very common. Every When there's a heavy rain, there's, there's some flooding. That's part of life. It's particularly part of life in Southern California because Southern California architecture and streets and communities are not designed for handling large amounts of rain. Okay, so this tropical storm brought about 30 times the amount of rainfall that had been previously recorded on this date as the highest amount of rainfall. So this was an extraordinary event. Uh, These warnings, it doesn't seem to me entirely delusional or misplaced to have issued them. So I was thinking... I was very angry at the 40 people who didn't come to their wedding. It's so sad for the bride and groom. I mean, God bless them for enjoying their day. Even if zero people show up, you're getting married. It's a, it's a. Okay, when you have rain for the first time in an area not designed for rain, right? Streets are particularly slick, right? It's particularly dangerous driving. So who knows how many lives were saved because of these expert warnings, stay home. Sacred, beautiful thing. But that must have been difficult for them. I would be I would be sad and upset if 40 people, a large so percentage in I, I got to tell you, I would pay any one of them money, good money, to come on my show and explain why they didn't go to the wedding. Were most well, in fairness to some, maybe they were flying and their their flights were canceled or something, but was do you think no, it was no, primarily no, local? No, no, they were in LA. Oh, okay. No, 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 and some had already arrived the day earlier. Nobody flew in that day. Right. That's, and the flights were not canceled. There was no reason to cancel the flight. Nothing not everybody is equally comfortable driving in the rain, particularly in Southern California where it's rare and where you haven't had rain for six months, right? Roads are particularly slick and perilous. You get flush flooding because when the ground is especially dry, water travels across the surface, notes the chat, instead of being easily absorbed. You also get mudslides, liquefaction. You get all sorts of troubles. So Dennis Prager is doing what you need to do to be interesting, as a pundit, like to make a very strong point. And I guess I'm not such a great pundit because I don't have a strong point here. I, I have I have equal sympathy for both perspectives. Happened. That's true. I was I, I actually was going to visit my sister on, on Sunday. She lives near LAX and I was watching planes take off and land in the in the rain. Flights were, were resume, resuming. They, they're, they're, they're resuming closed, is not even the right word. They, they were going off. Yeah, resuming is fine. They, they were never paused. Oh, yeah, that's correct. So it's not the correct word. Okay. I was trying to bail you out. I know. Thank you. I appreciate I it. I know you do. Uh, they closed the schools. I know. That's absurd. How many parents will complain? Well, you said on your radio show 1%. I would agree, but I actually think a lot more would write emails if they didn't think that they or their children would be penalized for doing so. I think that a lot... So in the past, uh, Dennis has mocked you know, various places that are shut down in advance of possible hurricanes. But then you, and usually, usually the mocker is going to turn out to be right. Because the people who issue the warnings, right, they do it, I would expect, on the basis that if they're just right 10% of the time, right, it, it, they would do more good than harm with these kind of warnings. Then sometimes you get things like Hurricane Katrina, 
right, which, which cause you know, substantial loss of life. And uh, you can't still perfectly accurately predict the weather and its effects on people. So warnings, you know, be alert, be on guard, don't seem entirely misplaced. A lot of parents would fear that they would be labeled as climate change deniers, complainers, not trusting of, you know, the government and its supreme wisdom. And Brandon says what's important about this is the government won't allow people to take risks. Well, the government is not stopping people from driving. Right? The government is not usually going door to door and, and forcing people to leave their homes. So in this case, with regard to the tropical storm hitting Los Angeles, the government took no punitive measures with, with the rarest of exceptions. I mean, you are perfectly free to drive around. Um, and authority, you know, uh, these parents would be seen as being hard on teachers who may not have access to transportation to get to schools. I mean, that's honestly what I think would prevent the parent more than anything else from sending an email to the school. And Glib Medley says most Angelinos self-combust at the first drop of rain. Well, for, for good reason, because rain is more rare here. It's a more hazardous condition because Southern California is not built for handling significant amounts of rainfall, significant amounts of rainfall are far more dangerous here than they are in other parts of the country. And because people are not used to driving in rain and in driving in slippery, oily, uh, hazardous conditions, right, it's going to have much more of a negative effect. We are all tend to be anxious about things that we have less familiarity with compared to people who have a great deal of familiarity. And that's, that's a whole problem unto its own. Yes, uh, that is. So... My very, very dark conclusion is one I wrote about. I actually read it on my radio show. You read my book, Think a Second Time, my book of essays? Of course, yes. Thank I've you. read all your books. Yeah, you did. Okay. Except you're on me. But Except you're on me. Yeah, I haven't read that okay. yet. So I, I have an essay in there. I mean, it, I'm very proud of this fact because I wrote this in the late 1990s, a long time ago. And I wrote an essay about a, an experience I had. In a nutshell, I, I was to give a speech in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is on, out, a suburb of Philadelphia. And I, so I arrived the day before in, in New York City, stayed overnight at a hotel in Manhattan, had a rental car all night. And when I woke up, do not drive blizzard storm conditions unless it is an emergency. Do not drive. I looked out the window of my hotel room. I remember this so vividly. And it looked to me like there was about one inch of snow on the ground. <laughs> so I remember thinking, because I still had not yet realized what I now realize, people are so influenced by media that it is more influential than their own experience. Yes. This is critical. This is why it's so dark. So I thought, oh, well, I, I guess it's in New Jersey. It's horrible. Of course, it was a stupid comment because how far is Manhattan from New Jersey? It, you know, one of the tunnels or the, or the George Washington Bridge. So I left three hours early and I got there three hours early. There was no traffic. Everybody listened to the radio and TV. Mm -hmm. And that awakened me to the ease with which people can be brainwashed. Yes. You are experiencing the opposite of what we're saying, and you believe us. Well, that well, sometimes what you don't see, but the experts do see as a possible hazard, right? sometimes what you don't see is a hazard, right? It's not like your own intuitions are just 95% of the time superior to that of those with expertise in the area. Right? I'd say it's about 50-50. That's the comment that I made. I remember on Dennis and Julie while I was still in college. It's I remember one day walking in Harvard Yard and this hit me like a lightning bolt, um, a real one, not a government fake one that may or may not have occurred during a fake hurricane. Anyway, I, I remember walking in the yard and going, what people are fighting against, what occupies so much of their time, the money that goes to grants and research projects and, and, and theses at this university doesn't exist. 
race i mean not that i shouldn't say doesn't exist obviously right, small yeah. amounts of racism yes. in the united states exist right. climate change does exist is it the existential threat? but but think about that this whole complex of of thought and money and energy and time and it is given to these boogeymen that aren't real the, the, the average student at the American college or university who says that they are fighting against racism has never seen it before a day in their life. Well, for someone who's not a believer, it's not real. All right. If you're not a Christian, all right, many of the things that Christians sense around them, right, the presence of evil spirits or the presence of the Lord, all right, it's not going to be real to you. You don't believe in the left wing value system, then, yeah, the, the presence of racism is going to seem bogus. Lies. Isn't that amazing? And so you're right. It, people can be brainwashed so easily. Against what they see. Against what they see. Or, I mean, in the case of racism, don't see. Racism is totally rampant. I've never seen it. Wouldn't you think if, if the United States were as systemically racist a place as the left makes it out to be, don't you think we would have met one racist in our lifetime? I have never met a racist in my entire life. Well, I've Literally lived a not lot one. longer than you. The only one I knew was my, my grandpa. I know. You told that on, on the air. Which was somewhat of a joke. Right. Because he treated, you said yes. he treated black people yes. beautifully. Right. I have Okay. Back to this uh, David Brooks essay on uh, you know, what, what's going on with, with America? And part of what's going on with America is that uh, a great deal of ordinary, healthy, primal, primitive, medieval emotions and responses, such as the blood and the soil, loyalty to a particular people, a desire for a heterosexual understanding of marriage and of the military, all right, freedom of association, rights to private property, the original understandings of the U.S. Constitution prior to the civil rights industrial complex launched in the 1960s, all right, many of these things have become pathologized. And so there's a terrific book about one aspect of this, the loss of sadness, right? How psychiatry transformed normal sorrow into a depressive disorder, right? Grief is a normal, natural, and often healthy reaction to loss, the end of a love affair, Finding out that your spouse has been unfaithful, the dissolution of a marriage, the failure to achieve your cherished life goals, the loss of financial resources, the loss of illusions, right? You, you may go to work thinking you have excellent relations with people, and then you, you, you may find out they've been stabbing you in the back. Loss of social supports and relationships, the diagnosis of a serious illness in yourself or a loved one, the death of a beloved pet, the death of a celebrity who you do not personally know. All these things can create periods of low mood, low initiative, and pessimism. This is a normal, healthy, natural reaction to loss. My father was devastated with Ingmar. Is it Ingmar? Not the director, the, the actress. Yeah, no, no. Ingrid, is it Ingrid Bergman? Ingrid Bergman. Yes, my father was devastated when Ingrid Bergman died. He took that very hard. He just absolutely adored her. So the DSM, Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Psychiatry, they have a definition of a mental disorder that excludes all expected and culturally sanctioned responses to a particular event, for example, the death of a loved one. So they exclude that from its definition of a mental disorder. But emotionally painful responses to other loss, such as losses of illusions, losses of uh, opportunities, marital, romantic health, or financial losses can be just as expected and culturally sanctioned responses as those of bereavement and should therefore fall under the definition's exclusion as well. So marital dissolution is probably the most common trigger of intense normal sadness that could meet the DSM's symptomatic criteria for a depressive disorder. Right? The intense sadness that follows the loss of romantic attachments is a long literary theme. 
So severe losses of an intimate nature inevitably lead to a sadness response. This is not necessarily a depressive disorder that needs to be treated with medication. So we all live in evolutionary mismatch, right? We are largely shaped by genes that developed as an adaptation to previous environments, all right? We are prehistoric creatures living in medieval institutions with godlike technology. I love that summary. And Alan Horwitz wrote another terrific book from 2016, What's Normal? Reconciling Biology and Culture. So contemporary societies are the safest, the healthiest, the most prosperous that have ever existed. So you would expect their citizens would have low levels of fear and anxiety. I mean, is this not one of the most central accomplishments of modern civilization? The overall reduction of a rational basis for fear because we have nighttime electrical lighting, we have insurance policies, we have police forces, we have standing armies, we have the destruction of predatory animals, we have lightning rods on churches, we have solid locked doors on buildings, right? We have thousands of other small designs making life much safer, rates of violence around the lowest they've been in recorded history. Lifespans of unprecedented longevity mean that few of us need to fear dying before old age. We have greater economic security, than previous eras, and yet our own current age reveals extraordinary high rates of anxiety. So why is this, and why is it called a disorder? So perhaps the best reason is evolutionary mismatch, just like our preferences for high-calorie foods, right? Our current fears do not correspond to actual dangers in present situations, but they are better understandable as reactions that were passed down to us as part of our biological inheritance of fears made more sense in the prehistoric past where we evolved. Uh, infants display a great deal of social anxiety. Fear of strangers is virtually universal, seems to be biologically primed. The temptation to see anyone who's different from us as hostile and subhuman is always present in us, right? Maybe deeply buried, maybe deeply repressed, it may be disdained, it may be put down, maybe pathologized. We may have whole armies of social workers and mental health professionals and liberal elites condemning any manifestation of this, but it's in all of us, right? All of us have this temptation to see anyone who is different from us as hostile and subhuman. It is always present in us, no matter how deeply buried. We do not tend to be promiscuous because people are naturally jealous when their relationship is threatened by a partner's additional sexual involvement. So jealousy functions to protect monogamy, to deter infidelity, and to signal a potentially adulterous partner that he should refrain from entering a relationship. So jealousy has acted as the glue that holds the sexes together for the benefit of the family and the survival of the species. This is a primitive emotion. This is a primal emotion. It's a medieval emotion, one that uh, our more modern elites may think they can transcend. But... Jealousy is innate, the human condition. So we have emotions because they are adaptive, right? Normal grief, normal sadness has three essential components. It usually arises in a specific context after the death of an intimate or some substantial loss. Its intensity should be roughly proportionate to the importance and centrality to one's life of the loss. And it should gradually subside over time people adjust to their new circumstances and return to psychological and social equilibrium. Now, grief can be pathological, just like 
a wrist can be pathological when it can't do the things that you expect a wrist to do. So grief processes become pathological when they emerge in inappropriate circumstances, when you have extreme symptoms that do not match circumstance, you have functional impairment, where you have morbid preoccupations, suicidal ideation, psychotic symptoms that persist for an extraordinary long period of time. And another bedrock evolutionary principle that uh, Darwin never mentions, he just takes it for granted, is heterosexuality. Darwin, Darwin never mentioned same-sex erotic behavior. So I was listening to this decoding the essays, uh, decoding the guru's episode on Noam Chomsky, and I was thinking, Noam Chomsky here sounds so much like Donald Trump after the 2020 election. Noam Chomsky here talking about how Labour came reasonably close to winning, right? Uh, fell about 18 votes, 18 parliament members short of taking power in 2017. And Noam Chomsky in this interview just talks about it as a great victory. It sounds uh, very much like how Donald Trump would talk. Countries like Britain and America break away from the, as you put it, Western party line. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, I think, just agreed with you on lots of things, actually, in, in politics. He, he went to the country twice and he lost twice. It turns out the country did not want Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. Well, you know perfectly well that that's not what happened. Jeremy Corbyn won an enormous victory in 2017. Okay, <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn, right, who's the leader of Britain's Labour Party in 2017, won a tremendous victory in 2017. Now, didn't win enough of a victory in the sense that he got more seats and was able to form a government and take power. But, I mean, this is what happens when you operate with partisan blindness. And it's just as true of Donald Trump and his supporters as it is true of people on the left like Tom Chomsky. 17. No, he didn't. Yes, the biggest victory that Labour had won in a generation. No, he wasn't. He lost. He didn't become prime minister. Then what happened is the British establishment, including your newspaper, came down on him with a ton of bricks with false deceitful propaganda about uh, anti-Semitism, all exposed as lies. Totally. That's just not true. I'm afraid that's just not true. Uh, fact check this for us, Chris. Uh, won. <laughs> what happened with this election? Why is Chomsky saying that um, Corbyn won it? So objectively, Corbyn lost. Labour has not, has not been in power for quite a long time in the UK. So what he's referring to is that compared to their performance in 2015, they won a large amount of seats. So it was like a positive swing. Under Ed Miliband, they won 232 seats in 2015. Right? So Ed Miliband lost as well. <laughs> but, but then when Jeremy Corbyn was leader two years later, Labour won 30 extra seats, a 12.9% increase from their previous seats, which was quite large. However, that was not large enough to stop the Conservatives from winning the majority. So Tony Blair, in comparison, in 1997, won 418 seats. Right. Or in 2001, 413. In 2005, 355. All of which put Labour into power. So Tony Blair's performance objectively better than Jeremy Corbyn's. From yeah. 1990 election onwards, Corbyn's was the fourth best performance after Tony Blair. But what Chomsky is talking about is one, that swing, because people expected Corbyn to do worse. And there was a positive swing. But the other aspect is that the population of the UK has increased from the 90s. So if you count it by the amount of people that voted for Labour. Oh. It's more. <laughs> right? But this feels to mention that two years later... I mean, this is the exact type of argument that Trump supporters were making, that Trump received more votes than any other incumbent president. How come he wasn't lawfully re-elected? Well, receiving more votes than any other incumbent president does not get you elected. What happens is you have to receive more electoral votes from the Electoral College 
than the person and party that you're running against, which Trump failed to do. But Noam Chomsky here is just echoing the same sort of rhetoric used by Donald Trump and his supporters. In 2019, Labour lost 60 seats under Jeremy Corbyn and failed to win election again. Okay. So, All right. so you're being a stickler yeah. for facts, so that's helpful. That's good. That's useful. Thank you, Chris. But getting back to the question, the question that was asked is basically, if you're so right, Noam Chomsky, if, if all the working people in the UK are horribly exploited and desperately want this sort of change, then how come they aren't voting for it? And I think Chomsky's answer would be, that's because they're being tricked. Well, first of all, he kind of avoids the question by misrepresenting the facts as you describe them. But I think if he was pushed, he would say that they were being seduced and deceived by the mainstream media complex, which is tricking them to vote against their interests. Yeah. Right. And that's what many people on the right complain. Oh, the Democrats control the media, which they do. They control almost all our major institutions, which they do. So people are being tricked against voting in their self-interest. And this doesn't hold up because we are not evolutionarily adapted to being gullible. All right. So even though the Democrats control almost all our major institutions, Republicans still stand a very solid chance of winning even the presidential election because people don't just take cues from elites or from their education and from the media and just allow that to overwhelm all their own imperatives. Right? The, the Democratic control of all our major institutions may account for, say, up to 1% of uh, you know, voting patterns, but uh, even that, I think, is considerably exaggerated. Right, back to Noam Chomsky echoing Trumpist-type rhetoric. Yes, and he was asked by a different, more sympathetic interviewer about that question. Like, why did you say that? And you can hear his response to um, why he described that. And it is basically what you're saying. Now, you recently claimed that Jeremy Corbyn had a historic victory in 2017. Why do you think it's important to recognize that result and describe it in those terms? Well, Jeremy Corbyn is a very decent... Elliot Blatt says the Burning Man flood is the feel-good story of 2023. Why? Why does that feel good? Like, what do you have against Burning Man? Why are you taking joy in other people's suffering? Elliot Blatt, is it because you weren't invited? Why? Yeah, I mean, this is like the time I, I went to an engagement party and showed up in therapy the next day, and I talked about these two, two women who squealed in delight when they saw each other, and they ran into each other's and arms, and then they jumped up and down. And I was talking about how silly that was. My therapist said, well, don't you wish that someone would squeal with delight when they see you and run across the, the room and, and embrace you? And I thought, oh, yeah, I, I, I guess I do. In person, I tried to create a Labour Party that would be a participatory party, not just run by elites and, and the parliament. And it would furthermore work for the interests of its constituents. I mean, this sounds exactly like Donald Trump and his supporters. All right. Finally, we've got someone who bypasses the elites and is trying to organize and run government in the interests of the people rather than the elites. I mean, this is a real meeting of the left and right. Uh, and was very successful. 2017 vote uh, increased the labor vote by huge amounts, I think more than in about 50 years. That set of alarm bells through the whole establishment can't allow this. We can't have a political party that's a participatory party. Right. This is how Trump has talked, that uh, Donald Trump sets off alarm bells among the establishment or immigration restrictionists. They set off alarm bells among the establishment and the elites decide we simply can't have this kind of talk. Right. This is an exact match for right wing dissident rhetoric, but it's coming from a left wing dissident. 
but it's the same type of partisan thinking. Party, and that represents its constituents. It's not the way politics works. Politics works run by small elites who tell everyone. You should decode anti-Gentilism. Yes, well, anyone with a strong in-group identity is very likely to harbor negative feelings about out-groups. Like, we all have within us a propensity to regard people who are different from us as subhuman. As I mentioned earlier, this may be very deep. It may be strongly repressed. It may be something you only offer in, in the most private of uh, circumstances, but it's there within us. It's there just as much within Jews as among non-Jews. Right? We all have a tendency deep within us to have great suspicion, opprobrium, disgust, and revulsion towards people who are different from us. Anyone else what to do? Then came the establishment attack on. Uh, you should do a decoding of Jewish hate for Christianity. Well, it would be weird if two groups who had so much tension, conflict between them, who have exchanged so much violent rhetoric right, who have persecuted each other, though Christians have obviously had far more state power than Jews over the past 2,000 years, it would be very weird if there wasn't some negative feelings flowing in both directions. So Christianity emerged out of Judaism, right, it, it would be weird if, uh, if Christians didn't have some negative feelings about Jews for not accepting Christian claims for, for Christ. And it would be very weird if Jews didn't have negative feelings about Christians after all, when Christians were in power, right, they persecuted Jews at times. Uh, at times, they forcibly converted Jews. At times, they killed Jews. Now, it's very easy for Jews to be self-righteous about this because they very rarely had uh, state power over Christians. But both groups, it's easy for them to find reasons to have disdain, even hatred for the other, in addition to more complicated emotions and positive emotions. So... Until the 18th century, Jewish fortunes and Christian fortunes were running, generally speaking, in opposite directions. So the stronger Christianity was, the, the weaker Jews were. After the 18th century, with the rise of secularism, uh, Jewish and, and Christian uh, forces have largely run in, in tandem. As we increasingly live in a secular world, uh, religious Christians, religious Jews increasingly find more in common. But uh, back to Noam Chomsky. On Corbin, which was impressive, concocting all kinds of tales about anti-Semitism, all exploded, even in the early days, uh, at the beginning of this campaign. Uh, Chris, maybe it's all the mention. So why would people use accusations of anti-Semitism to take down someone like Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, if it's effective, people reach for whatever's effective. They'll use someone of plagiarism, right? That's the, probably the most damaging accusation you can ever make against a writer. You accuse them of plagiarism. That's like the death knell for a writer's career. Uh, but if, if anti-Semitism will get the job done, then you'll use anti-Semitism. If uh, racism will get the job done or homophobia, I mean, we all have an instinctive feel for which accusations will be most damaging, right? If you're a woman at work and you have some negative feelings about the workplace, right, you can destroy a man's career, you can get him fired by making accusations against the man that may not be entirely fair and accurate, right? Uh, so we all tend to reach for, for whichever attack is going to be most effective.
mention of the elites stealing the legitimate outcome of the election. But it does remind me of Trump's talk about stolen elections and illegitimate election outcomes. It's it's kind of like the left-wing version of it, isn't it? Like the right-wing version of these sorts of slightly conspiratorial things is very concrete. They rig the ballot boxes, they stole the election, that kind of thing. The left-wing version is always a bit more abstract, right? And not so concrete. It's, not always abstract. Like in left-wing socialist countries, they very much just openly say, you know, the ballot boxes have been tampered with or whatever, if they're in power and able to do so, if the result goes against them. So I, yeah. I don't think it's always the case that it's couched so non-concretely, shall we say. But in, in this case, yes, I agree. First of all, you know, you could hear there, Matt, right? Because he said the biggest increase in 50 years. So it's trying to present it in that relative way, which again, it's completely wrong because <laughs> there was an increase of 147 seats in 1997, a 54% increase. So that's just factually wrong. But, but even setting that aside, there's the notion that the will of the people would elect the leader that Chomsky wants, if the people were allowed to express it. And obviously the objection to Corbyn, any of the kind of reasons given are fundamentally dishonest. It's because of the threat he poses to capital. Yeah, and form forming a properly inclusive labor movement, that's the, that's the real yeah, threat. Yeah, Corbyn is a decent man who wants to create a utopian society and the evil neoliberal capitalists cannot allow that, so they have to disarm. Now, and Trump supporters would say <laughs> much the same thing about evil, evil neoliberal, you know, capitalists who won't allow, you know, an America first regime to get the job done. Like, looking back to this David Brooks essay in The Atlantic about moral formation. So David Brooks writes that uh, we live in a society that's terrible at moral formation. Well, what is your starting point for understanding moral formation? Right, for the liberal, people are primarily individuals with certain inalienable rights who can decide meaning and right and wrong by their own brains. For conservatives, people are primarily members of families, tribes, and nations with at least as many responsibilities as rights. So which perspective do you think would be more effective at moral formation? Now, Jonathan Haidt wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. He says that our understandings of fear, fairness, and justice developed from evolution, from a long history of alliance, formation, and cooperation among unrelated individuals in many primate species. And that led to the evolution of a whole series of emotions that motivate altruism, including anger, guilt, and gratitude. These all promote the reciprocity and non-zero-sum alliances that uh, social primates need to survive. Liberty and oppression is also an evolutionary solution to the problem of social cooperation. So we evolve certain responses to the adaptive challenge of living in small groups with individuals who would, if given the chance, dominate, bully, and constrain others. So aggressive, domineering behavior by an alpha male or female can trigger this foundation listening the righteous anger necessary to mobilize the group against would-be bullies. So Donald Trump has many of these characteristics of the bully, right? He t can be aggressive, domineering, and he has triggered a response that is probably rooted in our evolutionary instincts. So another major difference between the left and the right, between, say, Christian nationalists on the right and anti-Christian nationalists on the left, that people on the left place far more faith in experts. Uh, the, the PhDs who know better, who plan, who exhort, who badger and scold us. Right? They idealize the action intellectuals who have that special knowledge on how to fix society's problems. So the conservative intellectual disavows those ambitions. He uses his powers not to badger and scold the American people, but to expose the liberal badgering and scolding for what it is, for a form of liberal elitism, one more arena in which the anointed can mock, scold, and intimidate the benighted under the deceptive veneer of enlightenment, progress, and liberation. 
So all this all-purpose benevolence that the nurturant parent liberal morality invites is just resulting in endless manipulation and intrusiveness, but it's all cloaked in the mantle of respect for the individual's highest potential. But this respect is merely another tool with which the liberal left elite badger and scold those people on the right who they regard as benighted. It's a cudgel used to underscore the deficiencies of those who have not attained liberalism's self-understanding of having a higher consciousness. So when will somewhat display a moderately adequate level of curiosity, how broad-minded must be? Well, anyone who's found lacking on these fronts falls short to the high standards that liberals in their optimism urge upon us. So the ecumenical open-mindedness of liberal values really means that they can be implemented to fit their own parochial partisan imperatives, right? They disguise their policies with lofty abstractions such as awareness and sensitivities because they can never openly announce their hero system. So David Brooks defines moral formation as comprised of three things, helping people learn to restrain their selfishness, teaching basic social and ethical skills, and helping people find a purpose in life. Well, where do people normally get these skills? You get them from within the family, the extended family, the community, the tribe, the church, or the synagogue. Right? Where do we get our cues from what is good and noble and worthy of pursuing in life? Right? So liberals, particularly among the elites, they, they believe they stand above you know, this primitive retrograde medieval conservatism because they believe that their enlightenment ideals, belief in the power of rationality, belief in the innate human goodness, liberate them from the primitive, in their eyes, hero systems to which people on the right remain beholden, hero systems that revolve around loyalty to family, to blood, to soil, right, to a particular religion, to a particular nation. Right, so a hero system is a social teleology. Teleology means ultimate ends. It's a system of collective meaning production. And liberals see conservatives as compromised by a primitive attraction to these relics of a benighted medieval worldview. So one way of understanding differences between people on the right and the left is that people on the right are more medieval than people on the left who regard themselves as much more modern. The left-wing hero system tends to be disguised. It's concealed behind a secular facade of enlightenment, pragmatism, and utilitarianism. The liberals see themselves as promoting ordinary human fulfillment, shorn of any higher religious or metaphysical aspirations. But people on the right see that this liberalism, unbeknownst to itself, is motivated by a religious impulse and spiritual ideal that's become secularized, and it plays itself out through the medium of ostensibly secular goals, such as stopping global warming, ending racism, ending poverty. So liberalism is a hero system that disguises itself as the transcendence of all hero systems. On the other hand, it is the case that, there, of course, there are right-wing smear campaigns against a liberal leader in the run of the election. The right-wing tabloids are obviously going to portray a left-wing leader in the least favorable light they can. So, yeah, there are a lot of parallels that I think people won't want to have emphasized, but the underlying logic is the same. And I, I have more clips <laughs> which uh, <laughs> illustrate that. And so maybe I can move on to another one. Let's go back to the facts. 2017. He lost. Labor. He won the big. He lost. He lost. Sorry, there was the biggest labor in history. Then came the. It was, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. He lost. That was the biggest labor gain in history. Then. No, what ground? Oh, what, no, it wasn't. On what basis was it? Then came the enormous establishment attack 
across the board, right to left, what's called left guardian, with deceitful lies, all since exposed, about charges of anti-Semitism. No, that's Ab- not true. I'm sorry. The, the Equality and Human Rights Commission in the UK, the watchdog set up by the Labour Party, found the Labour Party guilty of not protecting Jews in the party. Less anti-Semitism in the Labour Party than among the Tories. This has all been exposed in detail by the Labour files. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, he does seem to have a very clear narrative there about Jeremy Corbyn winning, um, winning the capital yeah. W. Uh, <laughs> but not, like, the thing is, he's not in CN. Like, he knows that he didn't actually win. Right? Mm. So it's just the technical definition of winning that he wants to insert. But it's quite impressive how hard it is to knock him off track. <laughs> yes, it's like a steamroller. The interjections and disagreements just bouncing off him. Uh, yeah, so I guess... But, What's the theme there? The theme there is that for him, for his worldview, it has to be the case that grassroots working class movement, as exemplified by Jeremy Corbyn, can basically do no wrong. And if they don't win general elections, then it's because of lies, media manipulation, false class consciousness or something like that. Right. I mean, this is the same sort of rhetoric that's used by Trump supporters and people all over the political spectrum. Right. In uh, the United Kingdom, a major TV news presenter has been socially ostracized because what he was uh, paying off and having sexual relationships with the young men who worked for him let's see what douglas murray has to say clogged up by these sorts of you know cake gate speed gate everything's a damn gate you know and everyone thinks it's so original when they put gate after anything um and uh, you know what would the government be concentrating on what what might it be achieving um, if the answer is not much more, then there's even more trouble that we're in than I thought. Uh, but, my, but my belief is, is that we, we just are horribly misdirecting our, our energies. And yes, uh, there's, there's doubtless scandals going on. There always are. Um, and there are scandals that are of significance. I mean, you just mentioned Northern Ireland. The state knife controversies come back up again. I don't think that outside of Northern Ireland, one in a thousand households know anything about that. Maybe they don't need to. But it would probably be a more intelligent scandal to look at than the Gordon the Gophers former sofa mate scandal. Um, I, I, I think that, but as I say, the, the main thing isn't, isn't, you know, where are the scandals? It's a very post-Watergate thing that, that, that journalists think that their job is to find all the scandals that exist, expose them, and then win all of the awards. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very sort of post-Watergate way of doing journalism. Sometimes there are scandals, then they should be exposed. But the, the whole of politics, the whole of the country isn't just a set of scandals waiting to be uncovered. Right. The, the biggest problems we face are not scandals. The biggest problems we face are the results of laws and directions given by elites, such as to not you know, have police do their jobs, such as to pull people over for reckless driving and for not punishing violent criminals. Right. This has all been done with the full consent of the law. There is some fundamental failure of the media in this, but the fundamental failure of the media is a fundamental failure of government. It's a reflection of that which is the, the fact that government seems not to be able to do in Britain any of the things that we need it to do. Have, uh, there is some fundamental failure of the media in this. But- okay. we, we are risking throwing Philip Schofield under the bus. Now, I do think what he did was wrong. He knows what he did was wrong. He was clearly in a position of power. Uh, he, and I, I think the biggest issue is the, his connections in getting this young one at his job at ITV, because it was clearly that's what got him to that position. So we, we know this was a young person who was enamored by Philip Schofield, and that power dynamic was very toxic. However, we have to remember that, you know, at some point there's going to be a situation of, you know, vultures circling the prey here. Mm-hmm. He has come out, he has said he, he, he was wrong and he lied and all of that. I think we have to remember that he's still a human being and yeah. it's this kind of bullying that took 
to Caroline Flack. Now, he, he his mental health must be under enormous amount of strain because while he was wrong, you know, he's lost so much. He's lost, you know, the, his, the credibility that he's built over a 30-year career. He's no longer hosting that award show, which named Escape Me. He's been dropped by Sober the Princess Trust. <laughs> exactly. The Princess Trust yeah. he's been dropped by. Yeah. You know, and and the runner has, has also, you know, mm -hmm. borne the brunt of this. He's had mm -hmm. his privacy invaded in so many different ways. I think enough is enough. This public inquiry is not necessary. This is not the BBC. And I think it's highlighted what happens when you have inappropriate like, mm. sort of relationships at work. Okay, here's a philosopher who's accused of uh, inappropriate relationships at work. She left her husband for a student. So there's this idea now that's quite popular that if there's, if there's any disparity in status or any disparity in hierarchy, then somebody starting a love relationship with somebody who's lower than them on a status hierarchy is inherently exploitative, right? That there's something immoral about, uh, you know, it, and I've seen this even like, no matter how long that relationship lasts, no matter how much people are happy together, no matter how somebody would in hindsight say, I didn't see anything exploitative about this meeting. Uh, and because you're a woman, it's complicated because people don't usually see the woman in the higher status position. And that was something that I saw all over the place. I'm just curious if you think that that's contentless or if it's worth responding to. Um, so I think it is more specific than high-low status. Um, I think if I had um, gotten together with someone who was lower status than a tenured professor, which is a lot of people, um, people wouldn't have been so upset about it. Um, I think. So this is Agnes Callard. She's an academic philosopher. In 2011, she divorced her husband, fellow at University of Chicago professor Ben Callard. She began seeing Arnold Brooks, who was a graduate student at the time. After a year of dating, they married. She has two children with her first husband, Ben Callard, one with Arnold Brooks, and she lives with both her current husband and her ex-husband. And uh, she was diagnosed with autism in her 30s, and her longest book is called Aspiration, The Agency of Becoming. I think it's specifically that the person was a student and that they were a student in my own class. So it's, I, I do think it's, it's not just status, but it's power, right? Um, and so there's the idea that I was in a position of power over him and that you shouldn't have romantic relationships that, um, in that kind of context. And um, as a general rule, I think that's probably a good rule of thumb. Um, but, uh, you know, as I like explained on Twitter, um, there, because this is a somewhat fraught situation, the university has a whole bunch of regulations for how to do it. And I followed all those rules, um, including not starting a relationship with him while he was my student. Um, uh, that is, he was officially like, you know, his work was uh, transferred over to somebody else, etc. Um, so, uh, and, you know, I think that if we're thinking about this in a broader perspective of like, what do we want to encourage as a culture? I guess I think if everybody did what I did when they were in romantic relationships with students, namely announce the relationship to uh, officials at the university immediately, um, get out of the supervisory role, create a track record such that where I had where I had to do this over and over again, it would be very well known because they'd all be announced. I think we wouldn't really have any problems with faculty student relationships. <laughs> so okay. um, I think that um, that is all of the problem cases, and I know of many of them, are kept secret. They're people who don't uh, talk about it. And so they can't be monitored or regulated, and the abuses are unknown because they're secret. Okay, so this is Agnes Kaller talking with Diana Fleischman, who's in a polyamorous relationship with, uh, who's that Jeffrey guy, psychologist? Diana Fleischman's a psychologist. Jeffrey Miller, I believe. Yeah, I think that most of the time somebody in a position of power is a man, and uh, you know, most of the time they're heterosexual relationships with men in a position of power and women in a position of less power or a you know, subservient kind of role. And um, you know, this, we don't have to... Uh, talk about evolutionary psychology that much. I do have a question about that at some point, because uh, I know that you talked to Robin a lot. Um, but in some sense, uh, it's unusual for somebody in a position of power to want to be in a serious relationship with somebody um, in a position of less power than they are, rather than somebody 
usually people in positions of power, I mean, one of the whole reasons that people are motivated to attain power is to have multiple relationships, not to have singular, serious romantic relationships, right? And so that's that's what you're saying is the problem comes from. Right. Um, um, I, I also, I should say that, you know, as reported in the piece, this was very much not private. Like it, it was not in the New Yorker originally, but you know, it was uh, something I announced to the university and I even gave a talk about it uh, to the university community. Um, and th there wasn't much outrage. Um, and uh, it, was, it was well known within philosophical circles because of course gossip spread. Yeah. And many of the people who were very, very outraged by it on Twitter 11 years later were not outraged <laughs> by it at the time when it occurred, which is like puzzling phenomenon, right? Why didn't you object to this back when, you know, he actually like was, had just been my student or whatever, rather than like 10 years later when we're married and he is a faculty member. And I think, uh, so this is part of why I didn't take the reaction that seriously is that um, those people had like 10 years to come to me and object and say, hey, I think there's a problem here. Mm -hmm. um, and, but they didn't until this piece came out. And I think it's just, it's the Rorschach test effect again. It's like the piece they found confronting, sort of upsetting, more personal than they wanted it to be. And they were looking like, where in this can we find something, you know, to make a moral objection to? And they fasten on something, but that very thing is not something that actually upset them when it showed up in their lives, sort of uh, approximately. Okay, that's uh, from Aporia Magazine. Like a lot of interesting material on Aporia Magazine. They also have a YouTube channel. They interviewed Steve Saylor about a week ago. All right, back to this David Brooks piece in The Atlantic. America was awash in morally formative institutions. Its founding fathers had a low view of human nature. Yeah, all political movements on the right have a skeptical view of human nature. They designed the Constitution to mitigate it. So if such flawed, self-centered creatures were going to govern themselves and be decent with one another, they were going to need some training. So for roughly 150 years after the founding, Americans were obsessed with moral education. So major difference here between the left and the right is in their view of human nature. Or right-wing politics begins with a negative perspective on human nature. The left takes a much more positive view. David Brooks makes some good points in this article, including these two paragraphs. These various approaches to moral formation shared two premises. The first was that training the heart and body is more important than training the reasoning brain. Yeah, you're only going to have substantial moral change if it takes place within relationships, within a community. Right? Some moral skills can be taught the way academic subjects are imparted through books and lectures, but we learn most of the virtues through the repetition of many small habits and practices, or within a coherent moral culture, a community of common values, or a tribe. And uh, concepts like justice and right and wrong are not matters of personal taste. An objective moral order exists, and human beings are creatures who are habitually seen against that order. So this is a traditional right-wing perspective, that there is an objective moral order outside of oneself. This is not a left-wing perspective. So David Brooks says, emphasizing moral formation means focusing on an important question. What is life for? And teaching people how to bear up under difficulties. So what you need here is a hero system. And it's a hero system that teaches people what life is really all about. It's a symbolic action system, right? You learn it from your synagogue, your church, your community, your family, your extended family, right? What acts are heroic and which are villainous? Right? You get a structure of statuses and roles. Right? All communities are hierarchical. You get customs and rules of behavior, all designed to serve as a vehicle for heroism in this world. So each script is unique. Each culture has a different hero system. But each cultural system cuts out roles for earthly heroics. Right? So it doesn't matter if your cultural hero system is based in belief in God, belief in the transcendent powers of your people, 
doesn't matter if it's secular, religious, primitive, scientific, civilized. It's still a mythical hero system that people will serve to earn a feeling of value, that they are special, that they are ultimately useful to the universe and a system of unshakable meaning. And people earn this feeling by carving out a place in nature within their community by building edifices that reflect their values, a temple, a cathedral, a totem pole, a skyscraper, a family that lasts for many generations. So man tries to create something of lasting worth and meaning that will outlive and outshine death and decay. And that's what gives people a feeling that they count. So imagine a person who extends beyond himself, right? That uh, the people are kind of like an amoeba, that they push their pseudopods out to a wife, to a car, a flag, a crushed flower, and a secret book. Right? You get this huge invisible amoeba that spreads out over the landscape with boundaries far from its own center. And if you tear and burn the flag, or if you find and destroy some sacred flower in a book, and the amoeba screams with soul-searing pain, right? we extend these pseudopods of ourselves to things that we hold dear. Right, to your house. Right, people often get vitally upset by a piece of wallpaper that bulges, by a shelf that doesn't join, a light fixture that isn't right. Often, people will break into violent arguments or crying over a panel that doesn't match. Interior decorators will reveal that many people have nervous breakdowns when they are redecorating. You can see a grown and silver-tempered Italian crying in the street in his mother's arms over a small dent in the bumper of his Ferrari. Right? Because we extend meaning and purpose outside of ourselves. Right? It's not just a scratch on a Ferrari. Right? People feel it as something that's very dear and dear to themselves. Right, here's Aaron McLock, English literature professor, talking about 400 years of quarantine, talking in particular about... Uh, a review of a book called Florence Under Siege, Surviving Plague in an Early Modern City, talking about the city of Florence in January 1631, responding to a plague outbreak. And this conversation took place in 2020 during the initial COVID lockdown. Of the people and hoping they'd recover. They did have, they did use medicines, um, like sort of different uh, concoctions, theria concoctions and cordials and things like that. And there was actually a great confidence in Florence that medicine worked and that doctors knew what they were doing. And that wasn't always true in other cities. So in Venice and Milan, there was a great um, suspicion about kind of charlatans and fake doctors. Um, but in Florence, there seems to have been a kind of great confidence in, in public health. Which must have helped with the enforcing the quarantine as well that if, if people if the people trust the the, the sunny thad and they're more likely to to do what they ask yeah. and do we know why that is why the florentines were more of authority or is it or of doctors or it's just it's really i mean it's really hard to know i mean um you know in, in milan in the same epidemic there were absolutely rampant rumors about what they called the untori, these kind of um, mysterious anointers who uh, were said to kind of go around churches and swirl infection into the stoops that contained holy water, or they'd smear infection onto doorways and church pews. And um, 
those, you know, became kind of part of this really like classic understanding of what the plague was like in the 17th century. But there was really very little of that in Florence. There was one doctor um, who is said to be either Neapolitan or Sicilian, so sort of suspiciously. <laughs> suspicious. Okay, so Diane Fleischman is in a relationship, or no, married to Jeffrey Miller, a psychology professor who's into polyamory. His uh, website is primalpoly, P-O-L-Y.com. And here's his wife, evolutionary psychologist, Diana S. Fleischman. Justly foreign, um, <laughs> who, who was um, accused of poisoning um, poisoning his patients with rotten chickens and things like that, but that seems to really have been the only the only case of that. Okay, um, but were any was that were any? I mean, one of the things that we've seen in some of the more unfortunate responses to COVID nineteen from the Trump administration, but also from people in, in the street, that there's racist ideas that it's somehow that it's a foreign it's a foreign disease that it's come from China, and that was was there. I mean, you've mentioned the prejudice against Neapolitans and Sicilians, but were there, was there any other prejudice against groups who were, who were suspected of having brought it into the city or were they more, more rational about that? I think there are, there are lots of prejudices. Um, one that is actually continuous with um, the Black Death, the 14th century plague, is um, a suspicion and prejudice against Jews. Um, they were some of the first to be kind of fully locked up um, and quarantined. They thought that perhaps um, their their black hat sort of festered putrefaction, festered contagion, um, and that that was a kind of very common response in Italy at the time. So I love this discussion in that they just take it for granted that there's no reason ever to be concerned or fearful about outsiders and the idea that. Uh, Strangers out group members might introduce a plague is just unacceptable to, to, to be suspicious of Jews. Another um, population who were marginalized were uh, prostitutes or sex workers. Um, sex was thought to generate excess heat in the body. Yeah. Why would people stigmatize sex workers during a time of plague? I mean, promiscuous sex <laughs> is a an incubator for all sorts of illnesses. It seems to me a fairly adaptive response. Um, which, if your kind of medical understanding is based on humoral theory, would make you more vulnerable to to infection, to disease. Um, and of course, there's also a kind of moral contagion idea there too. So prostitutes were also, um, yeah, marginalized during plague, plague epidemics. And then I think the poor were were a kind of broad category, which is something I was kind of interested in the piece too, that... Well, I would think that different groups would have different levels of sanitary practices. And generally speaking, all things being equal, I would expect uh, richer groups to be more sanitary in their practices than poorer ones. There's this really interesting tension between the rhetoric against the poor on the part of the government, um, which often you know, sees the poor as both vulnerable, but also as um, sort of essentially irresponsible, not. Well, if you're poor, you have fewer options, right? You're in more desperate straits. So it would be understandable that other people would regard them as less responsible because the poor have less ability to be responsible when their own survival is at stake. Civic-minded, um, even their bodies were thought to be more kind of corruptible. So one of the 
physicians in Florence at the time, Alessandro Righi, has a theory um, that the poor sort of fester plague in their bodies um, in a way that nobles don't. Um, but then on the other hand, they also looked after them and they had this kind of extensive welfare program and food provisioning as we, as we spoke about. So there's a kind of really interesting tension there between um, both blaming the poor and, and, also, um, and also looking out for them, which I... Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how the world works. People are complicated, right? People can fear a group and have disgust for a group and simultaneously make provision for the group. Right, back to what the heck is on going on with Noam Chomsky. Why does his rhetoric sound so Trumpian? Or is this not rhetoric that is common among dissidents, whether they're on the left or the right? It's also funny to refer to The Guardian as the so-called left. <laughs> I know that that is a common referring, especially amongst the leftist side, you know, the, the so-called left-wing Guardian. But like The Guardian's, it's pretty lefty, right? <laughs> the real left. That's like the real IRA, right? It's a splinter... It's true. It's it's all in the eye of the beholder and um, whatnot. I guess it's the corporate left. So let me play another clip which highlights the way he sees this issue. The parliamentary party, the Blairite parliamentary party, did not want to see. In fact, they said it. We have the documents in the labor files. Said we do not want to lose our party, the party that we own, to this effort to develop a popular-based party working for working people and the poor. We don't want to lose our party, do they? No, that's not what they said. That's not what they said. They did not want Jeremy Corbyn. said you could read it in the Labour file. They did not say they did not want a government that wants to act for the poor. What they said was they did not want someone with a shit lose their party. I So a man with a track record of tolerating anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and taking anti-West positions, including wanting to give Russia the benefit of the doubt over the Salisbury poisonings was one of the big things that they protested. There's no anti-West positions. I do appreciate the British pundit style of interviewing because it's just, it contrasts quite distinctly with Lex Friedman's approach, for example, or the trigonometry <laughs> people, right? Like, Yeah, but uh, Noam Chomsky, I mean, it just, it's so Trumpian, this kind of, this kind of rhetoric, All right? Here's a uh, little burst from Dennis Prager on his show last week. It puts transgender and gender nonconforming students in, quote, danger of imminent irreparable harm. Wow. Talking about school districts in California that mandate the parents be notified if th their children in public schools change genders. Wouldn't the parents know anyway? By potentially outing them at home before they're ready, according to the lawsuit. Really, you're in danger of imminent irreparable harm. Maybe you're in danger of imminent irreparable harm when you fall into the hands of so many sick, so-called therapists who say to the eight-year-old, oh, you think you're a boy? You are. The profession of psychology and the profession of psychiatry have been so denuded of excellence and truth as to become a farce. Most psychiatrists and most psychologists are frauds to their profession. Uh, yeah, but, okay, I think that's somewhat of an overstatement. But uh, what about talk show hosts? I mean, couldn't you make all these same arguments about talk show hosts such as Dennis Prager? So I, I largely agree with Dennis Prager's analysis here, but I think he is overstating it. And I think his analysis would equally apply to people such as himself. I've always known this. This is not new. How many psychiatrists announced in 1964? Was that two generations ago? That Barry Goldwater was mentally ill? The profession of psychiatry, for reasons I do not know, since in its core it's, it can be terrific.
it's a profession that's highly subjective because there aren't blood tests, right? There aren't concrete tests to determine psychiatric illnesses. So it's a profession that is largely revolves around achieving billing through insurance companies. And so making diagnoses that insurance companies will pay for and providing medication that is supplied by pharmaceutical companies, right? So meeting economic incentives has you know, created the psychiatric profession as we know it. The profession of psychiatry apparently breeds a particularly narcissistic fool, arrogant fools. Does not uh, the profession of pundit also do exactly the same thing? How many fools are not arrogant? What percentage of fools are arrogant? Well, I won't go off on that tangent. This is quite a story, and it will persuade virtually no one to stop voting Democrat because there is nothing they can do to persuade people. Okay, overheated rhetoric there from Dennis Prager. Let's get back to analyze, analyzing Noam Chomsky. Yeah. Whether or not you agree with Matt Charlie's response, I think it's better that he presents the, you know, like a kind of, no, 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 it's like this, because you can also hear Chomsky respond then to the critique. The UK is famous, isn't it, for its competitive journalists. They don't do these softball interviews. So, so what's the background there? Like, what's the bigger picture in your eyes, Chris? You, you know UK politics and um, what oh, his all vision that. of it is. Yeah, so he just, he doesn't like Keir Starmer. And Corbyn was a more far left, member of the party who had for quite a long time been a kind of gadfly on the fringes, but then became the leader of the party, which gave a lot of power to groups in Labour that had been marginalized for one reason or another. And then they didn't win two elections. Corbyn is not the leader. The new leader is a kind of moderate left wing, what they regard as a neo-Blairite type. And mm -hmm. so predictably, Chomsky doesn't like him and thinks it's a coup of sorts to please the Right. This is similar rhetoric, similar thinking to Christian nationalists, right? people on the very opposite side of the political spectrum uh, who also believe that a you know, institutional neoliberal elite is trying to thwart the will of the people. Real party of the people that was being built with a defanged conservative party light version thereof. And, and the part which is sort of interesting is that there's these endless reports flinging back and forth about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and accusations that it's been oversold or that it's been under-recognized, depending on, on how you look at it. But I think what is pretty much non-debatable, wherever you fall, is that it's been a topic that has been used on both sides, right? It's been used as an opportunistic attack, as well as it's been denied, you know, it's been painted as just a smear. And, and there are actual grievances, there are actual reports, but there are also reports showing that various factions are weaponizing it or accusing it of being weaponized. So the anti-Semitism is real. There were real concerns. I mean, I just, no, Chomsky, in these clips, he sounds like the, the My Pillow guy. He does those ads that are ubiquitous in right-wing media. Turns with reactions directed at Corbyn and Corbyn's wing from the Jewish community. But it, it also was a handy thing to use as a delegitimizing issue. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I yeah, Noam Chomsky in these clips, he sounds like Mike Lindell of my pillow. Yes, the difference between how I might look at these things and how Chomsky would is, without knowing the intricacies of UK politics, is that this is all pretty normal. 
in, in parliamentary democracies like, like Australia and the UK, right? You've got your centre parties. They have their different factions. Our Liberal Party's got a right faction and a left faction. And our Labour Party's got a right faction, a left faction, and other factions too, I'm sure. And when, you know, these different factions, sometimes one has control, sometimes the other has control. If they're not doing particularly well in the polls, if there's some scandals or, you know, difficult things going on, then they get knocked over and the other group gets in and gets to run the show for a while. So it all seems like, like pretty much powerful. Yeah, but the, that's not how Chomsky looks at it, right? It's, it's, there's a plot, essentially. There's the mechanisms of neoliberalism coming into play to get rid of the people's choice and what the people want. Yeah, and for example, in the way that he presents Corbyn, it's not just that he's a person with a particular political agenda. It's that he's a very good person with a very important political goal. That right. Thinking of our institutions, it's been almost 22 years since 9-11. There have been no new airline hijackings of which I'm aware. So maybe... Maybe our institutions are doing a pretty good job here, right? Would you have thought on September 12th or for the first year after 9-11 that we'd go another 22 years without uh, a major hijacking? Uh, it would have led to great outcomes if it hadn't been foiled. So, for example... You can read it in Al Jazeera. Is uh, Japan a poorer country? No, it's not. The British press has chosen to mostly suppress it and marginalize it. But that's a problem for the British press. Right. The, the British press, they're, they're marginalizing the good people around Jeremy Corbyn, just like uh, Trumpists believe that uh, the, the, the American press are you know, trying to marginalize the Make America Great Again movement. Corbyn has since been virtually kicked out of the Labour Party. His effort to try to develop a popular-based party, participatory party, that would serve the interests of working people and the poor was smashed by the British establishment. It's a scandal. Okay. But uh, has nothing to do with these other things that we're talking about. Yeah, so you got that, Matt. <laughs> so he was just trying to solve the issue for the poor and the working class people, and the establishment couldn't have that, so they destroyed him and his efforts. And now he's he's marginalised. It is not what you said, which is standard political horse jockeying proposition. Uh, well, I guess um, his sympathy for Corbyn is understandable. They share a lot of similar kind of anti-imperialist, anti-war in general kind of views. Corbyn against pretty much every military intervention in recent history, including in Libya and Syria. Yeah, I see here has even called for NATO to be disbanded. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's not a totally mainstream stance, even for a Labour Party leader, right? No, no. Much ink has been spilled on Jeremy Corbyn and, and where he stands, but he is well known for his opposition to the Iraq war and criticism of Israel. Not particularly surprising. These are not unheard of positions on the left and, and particularly not to the more progressive wing of the left, especially the criticisms of Israel. It's interesting how the hard left and hard right positions kind of dovetail there because, you know, like with withdrawing from NATO and skepticism towards those sort of multilateral agreements is, is something you also see on, on the right in America and, um, and the UK. Slightly different motivations, but I guess it ends up at the same place. Well, yeah, there, there are interesting overlaps. Although, for example, Corbyn was, I think, credibly accused of not campaigning very effectively against Brexit for different reasons than the right-wing concerns about immigration. He also had concerns about stronger partnerships with Europe that primarily revolved around opposition to neoliberal globalization. But actually, that somewhat distinguishes him a little bit from Chomsky because when Chomsky was talking about the EU in the interview, he said this. Um, and there's no sign of any of any benefit from leaving the EU. What, do you think that was a, a sensible decision by Britain to do that? I thought at the time that it was a very serious error, uh, both harmful to Britain, harmful to Europe, uh, in a way beneficial to the United States, because under Brexit, Britain becomes even more subject to US domination than it was before. Uh, but I thought it was a terrible mistake. And I think the record since 
basically confirms that. Good. Yes. <laughs> I agree. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, and there is a clip of him summing up Keir Starmer for you. I actually don't think he gets much wrong here, but this is him discussing Starmer. Well, so far, there are people like uh, Will Hutton, for example, who think that Keir Starmer has all sorts of fine plans for um, social reform and so on. I don't see any evidence of it. All he's been doing so far is purifying the Labour Party of any militant activist elements and uh, putting it onto more central control, eliminating people like Corbyn, of course, Driscoll recently, and others who do um, work for a constituent-based party with uh, dealing with needs of the uh, constituency, labor constituency. So it seems to me we'll, he'll probably move towards a Blairite-style parliamentary, elite parliamentary party. That's your life. Well, Keir Starmer seems a technocrat. He seems pretty effective. He seems to be moving towards the centre. He's got to be an overwhelming favourite to be Britain's next uh, Prime Minister. Uh, regarding leaving the European Union, I was quite supportive of Brexit when it happened, but now I have to admit that uh, overwhelmingly it seems like it's it's a negative thing for Great Britain. Its economy is suffering. There's you know, no good news on the horizon for Great Britain's economy. I'd have to say from what I know now, uh, leaving leaving Brac- uh, leaving the European Union was a disaster for Great Britain. Oh, it used to be gone. Sounds about right to you, Chris. Well, he's got a negative spin on that, but like he, he is correct that, like we discussed, you know, whichever faction is in power tends to want to shore up its support and marginalize the elements <laughs> that might disrupt that, which Corbyn also attempted to do when he was in the leadership position. But he is also right that, in general, dramatic reform efforts, I, I wait to see evidence of that. But again, I think that's you know, it's pretty common in center-left parties that nobody's really happy with what they do. They make too many concessions and too many promises, and then everybody's fed up with them. But as long as they get power for a little while, I'll confess to that, because the conservatives have been in power for a long time in the UK. Yeah. Matt. Generally, center parties are pretty much focused on winning elections and adjust their policy to suit. I guess that's something where, like, I'm just trying to identify what, if anything, is wrong <laughs> with Chomsky now view, because, you know, he's a, a lefty with opinions. And a lot of what he's talking about here is just giving his political opinions. And I think almost all political opinions are valid in a way. But I guess my issue. So I remember when COVID broke out, uh, just before COVID broke out, I'd been wearing a face mask because I was doing a lot of cleaning and shredding and I just didn't want to breathe in the fumes. And so people uh, around me said, oh, you know, you're early with face masks. And face masks did just make certain amount of common sense to me early on in COVID. And I remember the, the overwhelming elite media consensus about face masks with regard to COVID for about the first month of, for, for March, right, was overwhelmingly that they are useless and people would mock me for wearing face masks. Right? The dominant left-wing media public health consensus was there's no need to wear face masks. It's likely to spread around the entire world. A lot of people are going to get it. Potentially most of the world's population are going to get it, which sounds terrible, but it the, of most of the people who get coronavirus will not die from it. Okay. Um, it's got about a 2% fatality rate. Um, and the way that we all need to deal with it, although it is a, a new threat, we've never seen this virus before, it's actually very old-fashioned ways of protecting ourselves. You do all the things that you do to protect yourself from getting a cold or from getting the flu. We don't have to do anything 
outrageous. We don't need to change our lives drastically at an individual level. You just need to be more vigilant about washing your hands, make sure you don't develop patterns where you don't touch your face. Uh, that's the way that we tend to give ourselves colds in the flu. So at an individual level, there's no reason to panic, but it's a serious thing. I saw somewhere they said, don't sneeze or cough on people. I go, were we doing that? <laughs> exactly. Were people doing that? New Year's resolution? <laughs> it's like, I'm going to stop coughing on people. I really yeah, I'm not getting invited back to parties. But yeah. I've seen a lot of the masks around the city. Is that a... That's what? probably not a, not a thing. Um, no. I mean, you're seeing it, but it's probably not that smart. The Surgeon General actually put out a statement which was like, you guys, stop buying masks. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I saw that. If you are sick, if you have respiratory symptoms, that's people are wearing a mask in that circumstance because you're trying to avoid giving it to other people. Gotcha. But in terms of being a healthy person and trying to avoid getting infected, that's probably not, not that rational. So <laughs> that was the, the dominant left-wing media public health consensus for about a month. And then it changed 180 degrees. Uh, I think I've always felt that uh, for respiratory illness, wearing a mask uh, possibly provides some level of protection for yourself. And common sense suggests to me that it would reduce transmission somewhat, so modestly. And I noticed that uh, there are various parts of the United States that are masking up again due to a new wave of COVID, and I think that's probably a, a good idea. So I am, in general, pro-mask. You can do it you know, too much. There's no need to, to wear a mask if you're walking around outside. I, I would have videos deleted from YouTube because I would say that if you're just walking around outside, I don't see any benefit to wearing a mask, and YouTube would delete those videos as a violation of their terms of service. But if you are stuck in an enclosed space with, with other people, then in certain circumstances, it would seem to me you know, a, a modestly helpful measure to wear a mask. 40, is it true you lost half your audience because of COVID? Uh, probably something like that. I certainly seem to disagree with 90% of the people in the chat in that I took COVID seriously and I thought that the public health advice was 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 decent to good and that our elites and our major institutions did a better than expected job. I'm pro wearing mask when you're around other people in enclosed circumstances and you know COVID is rampant. I am okay with the, the shutting of the schools. I don't have a super strong opinion, but if we hadn't shut the schools and everyone would have caught COVID as it is, we had 2000 children under 18 die of COVID and tens of thousands have to be hospitalized because of, of COVID. So I, I don't think uh, shutting the schools for a year until everyone got vaccinated was, was a bad idea. Strongly support vaccination. So in general, pretty much side with the establishment and with most public health with regard to COVID. So there were various parts of public health and politicians who would uh, decry various vaccinations because there was a tiny percentage of people who would get, you know, an enlarged heart, which was just a temporary symptom in almost all cases. So public health, of course, wasn't perfect, and they have to put out a message that will be understandable to people, you know, throughout the IQ spectrum. So they had to dumb it down, and they couldn't, they didn't feel like they could uh, put, out, put out a message that, 
that was uh, realistic to threats, but they had to often overstate threats and overstate the effectiveness of what they were recommending, such as mass social distancing and uh, vaccines to try to shake people up, to get people to do what they regarded as the right thing. But overall, I think the establishment did a better than average job. 40 should wear a mask until the end of time to prove he is pro-social. No, what's pro-social depends on a certain context. If you are in an enclosed area with other people and you have a respiratory illness or there's a respiratory illness going around, in that context, wearing a mask seems to me a good idea. Does a mask help if I'm driving alone in my car? It doesn't help you not get COVID. It doesn't help you not transmit COVID. What it does do is it signals that you're a virtuous person who cares about taking you know, public health measures to reduce the spread of COVID. It's virtue signaling, but unlike pretty much everyone I know on the right, I regard virtue signaling as a good thing. Right In nature, animals are signaling all the time. We are signaling. I, I wear a yarmulke. Right? I am signaling my commitment to Orthodox Judaism. I see virtue signaling as a good thing. I washed out my groceries at the start. Then I realized it was a nothing burger for those who are not 70 plus. Well, it wasn't a nothing burger. Right, You had 2,000 kids under 18 who died from it, countless people in their 20s, 30s, 40s. 50s died from it. Still, the average age of death was around 70. But according to the most comprehensive academic survey we have, that uh, the average COVID death took 16 years of expected life. So it was, it was a very significant illness. We could all use a bigger heart. Well, the, the heart swelling symptom was almost always temporary. And overall, the, the damage from taking the COVID vaccine paled in comparison to the damage of not taking the COVID vaccine. Yeah, I wear my yarmulke in the shower to signal my virtue. Well, no one would see what I wear in the shower, so there's no virtual signaling going on. I, I don't think I was ever washing my groceries, but I remember many people who did. I, I remember even 18 months into COVID, there were still all these signs about the importance of hand washing to reduce the spread of COVID, and obviously that was bogus. There was a respiratory virus that would spread through the air, not so much uh, through hands. With him is in that misrepresenting points of fact and creating a narrative around a very sort of one-eyed view of things that have happened. I mean, that's probably the point at which I'd, I'd criticize him for, not so much just for being a hard lefty per se. Yeah, yeah. Let's move to him talking about Ukraine. <laughs> Let's see <laughs> if we can spot any similar such issues um, or perhaps good things. So he talked about this quite a bit, and it does come up in two of the interviews that we've covered. This one probably goes a bit long, but in any case, let's hear it. You mentioned the uh, the war in Ukraine. Let, let's turn our attention to that. Um, certainly in, in the UK, the left, uh, actually under people like Jeremy Corbyn, argued that it wasn't Russia that was the enemy, it was the US that was destabilizing the world. And then Russia invades a sovereign... And uh, Luke Croft in the chat says, I have family members who slept in their masks. Well, if it gave your, your family members a sense of agency that they were doing something, right? that they had able to exert some control over this threat, then the, the psychological payoff from what they did you know, may well have been worth it. Right? We, we do all sorts of things to try to feel like we're more in control of a chaotic world around us. Democratic country right on its, on its border, starting a conflict which is 
claimed tens of thousands of, of innocent lives. Does that not make clear the, who the real threat to the world is? It's not the US, it's the left is, as argued. Uh, Horatius says people will believe anything the government tells them. It shows that the power is all that matters. Not true. That's not true. People will not believe anything the government tells them. All right. People did not evolve to be gullible. Right. There are all sorts of things that the government tells people that they don't believe. Uh, particularly in the United States, there's probably more suspicion of the government in the United States than in any other first world country of, of which I'm aware. For a long time, it's, it's Vladimir Putin's Russia. Well, the invasion of Ukraine is plainly a war crime. You can put it in, you can't put it in the same category as greater war crimes, but it's a major one, uh, according to the uh, official. Uh, the only evidence that we have, solid evidence, is United Nations estimates, uh, Pentagon estimates, and so on. They estimate about eight thousand civilians killed. That's a lot of people. What the United States and Britain do overnight, it's uh, presumably it's an underestimate. So let's say it's. And the chat says, people will submit to power, they will kiss the king. They will submit to power when it's in their interest to do so. They will fight the power when it's in their interest to do so. And it all depends on the situation. People revolt when it's in their interest to do so. People bend the knee when it's in their interest to do so. What determines whether people kiss the ring or kiss the king? Or ignore the king, all right? It depends on the situation. The situation is king. The king is not king. The situation is king. So in certain circumstances, believing the government, acquiescing to power is in your best interest. In other circumstances, disbelieving the government and fighting the power is the best thing to do. Twice that much. That would put it at the level of the U.S.-backed invasion, Israeli invasion of Lebanon, which killed about maybe 20,000 people. I suppose it's off by a factor of 10. That is, the casualty rate is really 10 times as high as is claimed. Well, that would put it in the category of Ronald Reagan's terrorist atrocities in El Salvador, roughly on the order of 80,000. So it's serious. Of course, Iraq is just another dimension. So it's serious. It's a terrible crime. Uh, and the chat says people will not rebel until the power goes off. People are cattle. Well, your primary meaning and purpose in life should come from your family, extended family. There's no reason to rebel. And in current circumstances, whether in Great Britain, Australia, Canada, United States, there's no reason to rebel in a way that, that breaks the law and puts your well-being in, in danger. Uh, who, who would you rebel against and what would you rebel for? Hundreds of thousands of businesses bankrupt and out of business because of lockdowns destroyed countless lives for nothing. No, we know pretty definitively that lockdown saved lives. Now, in, in every case, was a lockdown warranted? Was every method used in lockdowns appropriate? You know, was there plenty of government overreach? Did they lock down the wrong thing, such as in Southern California, they locked down beaches and public parks and hiking, all right, very things that you want people doing, all right? You want people getting out there and, and moving around. That's the, the best thing possible during an influenza epidemic. And so, yeah, there were mistakes made. But uh, overall, lockdowns until we had widespread use of uh, vaccines were the best thing to do. And social distancing is a very old technique that's been used to deal with, with plagues for thousands and thousands of years, right? Why have we used social distancing with, with regard to, to plagues for thousands of years? Because it works, right? We, we didn't, we didn't uh, implement uh, social distancing out of nowhere because there was no precedent for it. Like social distancing helped in, in dealing with the, the Black Death, and uh, social distancing has helped with dealing with uh, COVID as well. 
you can understand why the global south does not take very seriously the uh, eloquent uh, uh, protestations of Western countries about this unique episode in history. Uh, they've been victims of far more. Maybe the Russians will go on to our level, maybe. Ah, right. So he agrees it was a war crime to, in to invade Russia. That's, that's positive, right? Anything but... else? <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems a bit equivocal, I suppose, about the question of uh, who's responsible for the conflict. Well, he's often accused of engaging in whataboutism that focuses on America and the West's crimes over and above any other countries. And whether you regard that as whataboutism or an accurate accounting, I think it is fair to say that's quite clearly on display there. You can present that as he's appropriately contextualizing the scale of the conflict and highlighting that the Western nations are not saints in any sense of the word. But it does sound a little bit like downplaying the scale of the conflict. And, you know, basically, if somebody mentions a conflict and you immediately cite other conflicts, it, it is like a way to point the attention elsewhere, right? Yeah. But it can't be denied that he, he did begin by saying it is a war crime, right? Yeah. Just perhaps a lesser war crime than what the US and other countries have done. Um, mm. So a bit more on this. But certainly from, from left-wing politics in the UK, this, this trying to create equivalence, an anti-West position um, become well, you're, you're equivalence you are joining equivalence you're saying that you've just you've literally just drawn equivalence with with the number of deaths in various places I, explain to people listening to this why what you're not saying is because ronald reagan did this or george bush did that that doesn't make what vladimir putin's done all right does it First time, i said it's a major crime but there's no equivalence that's following the party line i gave figures no equivalence maybe the casualty toll is 10 times as high as is estimated well that would make it like Reagan's crimes in El Salvador. It's not equivalent. Okay, let's look at this uh, Michael Hildzik column in the Los Angeles Times, came out August 29, said the early months of COVID pandemic before vaccines became widely available, lockdowns worked, combined with other non-pharmaceutical interventions, NPIs. So that's not uh, Richard Spencer's former organization. Uh, masking and social distancing slowed the spread of disease, saved millions of people from falling ill, landing in the hospital and dying. Absent these measures, hospitals, which were already overrun with patients in dire conditions, would have fared worse. Studies from as early as mid-2021 validated these findings. Latest evidence comes from the Royal Society, Britain's 360-year-old Academy of Sciences, known for its painstaking objective research. The report the Society released this month studied the effect of non-pharmaceutical interventions in Hong Kong, New Zealand, and South Korea during the first 18 months of the pandemic. Evidence shows unequivocally that Lockdowns and other social approaches provide powerful, effective, and prolonged reductions in virus transmissions. These steps are most effective if undertaken when disease transmission is low. So the idea that it was virtuous to reopen schools in the heat of the pandemic is based on a bunch of myths beloved by conservative politicians. There's a myth that school closings and the shift to remote teaching was almost entirely responsible for the test decline in test scores. The evidence for that is murky. About 360,000 American children lost a primary, a secondary caregiver to COVID. Nearly 300,000 American children were orphaned by the loss of one or two parents. What brought COVID into most households in a shocking number of cases? It was children, more than 70% of households began with the child bringing the virus into the home. And the transmission rate fell during school breaks that underscores the role of kindergarten through 12 classrooms in spreading the coronavirus. So children were important viral vectors in households during the pandemic. You, you can't have an effective 
social distancing if you allow schools to remain open. There's another myth perpetuated by many people on the right that children were largely immune to COVID and that if they contracted COVID, their symptoms were mild or non-existent. We know that more than 2,300 children have died from COVID. What would have happened if schools remained open without any mitigation measures? Nearly all children would have gotten COVID, as would everyone they live with and almost all school employees. So this is uh, Dr. Jonathan Howard writing here, was closing schools an obvious and colossal mistake? Maybe it was a mistake to close schools. However, those who make this claim should honestly grapple with what would have happened had nothing been done rather than indulge in an absurd fantasy that everything would have been fine. So what would have happened if all schools had stayed open? All children would have gotten COVID, as would virtually everyone they live with and almost all school employees. Right? The virus spread rapidly in schools. So how would the unmitigated spread of COVID affected children, none of whom were vaccinated? Right? In the U.S., over 2,300 kids have died from COVID. Right? This number would have been far higher had 60 to 70 million unvaccinated children contracted the virus over several months' time in 2020. Right? Thousands more children would have died without these mitigation methods. Death is not the only bad outcome from COVID. In the real world, around 150,000 children were hospitalized with COVID. Some needed mechanical ventilation in the ICU. Many suffered neurological complications. Sometimes they needed amputations. Sometimes they had strokes. All right, now, the vaccine has drastically lowered the risk of these rare but grave outcomes. But many more thousands of children would have been hospitalized and developed severe complications if the schools had remained open. Uh, many pediatric hospitals were already deluged during the Delta and Omicron waves. They would not have had the resources to treat sick children had tens of millions of sick children contracted COVID in a short time, particularly considering many healthcare workers were sick with COVID at the start of the pandemic. Many healthcare workers would have contracted COVID either from their jobs or from their own children had no mitigation methods been taken. So over 300,000 American children became orphaned by COVID. New York City, one in 200 children lost a parent in the first two years. Not all children experience COVID as something light. Not all bounce back immediately. Many children felt too sick to attend school. During the Omicron wave, 30% of New York City students were absent. So if schools had reopened without mitigation measures, many children would have missed school anyway for these reasons. Teachers would have been at risk. So from May 11, 2020, article in New York, New York City Department of Education has now lost 74 employees to COVID, 30 were teachers. Even after vaccines became available, 15 Miami-Dade educators died from COVID in 10 days. So more educators would have died, none of whom would have been vaccinated in the pandemic's first nine months if no mitigation measures had been taken. So would teachers really have been willing to work in schools with no mitigation methods. In the real world, sick teachers couldn't teach anyway. So many principals were begging parents to act as substitute teachers. Had a headline from Texas, September 2021, at least 45 districts shut down in-person classes due to COVID-19 cases affecting more than 40,000 students. 
one school in New York City sent a notice that though it was open, the kids were just going to hang out in the auditorium. There weren't enough teachers, so the school was nothing more than a daycare center. Though many educators would have been out sick had no mitigation measures been taken. Who would have taught the students? But I suppose some people listening to this will think you're seeking to excuse what no legislative has done. That is fabrication of the right wing. I am not seeking to excuse anything. I said it's a terrible war crime. That's not excusing anything. I'm talking about the extreme hypocrisy of claims about well, how this is the worst thing that ever happened when it's a fraction of what we do all the time. Hmm. What about that, Matt? Well, it does remind me of some of the less salubrious type of Twitter discourse where um, you might find people comparing death counts in various The gulags conflicts. versus the concentration camps, for example. Yeah, yeah. So it seems a bit tangential to me, frankly, like precisely how many people died here compared to there. Because, I don't know. <laughs> There's other factors at play. But yeah, so one thing I think which is worth noting is Chomsky remains pretty clear there, right? First of all, he's saying there's not an equivalence. The West is, has a much higher death toll. So he's saying there isn't an equivalence because it's, it's way smaller in the, the case of yeah. the Ukraine conflict. And second, he is clear, though, that he didn't justify it, right? Like he, he says, no, I've been clear that I said it's a war crime, a lesser war crime, perhaps. But he, he is quite clear, right, that he's, he's not saying it's okay. He's just mm. wanting so to say... Not the, as bad. Worse. the West <laughs> yeah. is worse. Yes, you're right. That's a good summary. I think that's a fair appraisal of what he's what he said. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Matt Jolly, the interviewer there, is highlighting that that response can be seen as minimizing what's occurring. And I, I don't know, Matt, but there is something about like has the U.S. in recent decades threatened to nuke a country after annexing a portion of it? Because mm. that does seem to be like there are differences. You can have legitimate critiques of a whole bunch of the stuff that Western nations have done around the world. And there are plenty of well-documented colonial events and holdovers. But Vladimir Putin's rhetoric about the willingness to use nuclear weapons, the dire threats that will be coming to anyone who dares mm. stand in their rightful reclamation of their territory, it does seem different. Look, I'm always very wary about comparing the magnitude of bad things in just in terms of these raw numbers because it's it's terribly flattening to do that. So you could compare Ukraine to, say, the Korean War. You go, well, you know, the Korean War had this many hundred thousand casualties, so the US is a bigger criminal than, than Russia. But that just totally ignores the context and the causes and who was instrumental in invading whom and a whole bunch of things. So look, there's no doubt. So Decoding the Gurus did an episode on Ibram... X Kendi. So inside of you, two, there are two walls. One of them is uh, racist. <laughs> there can be instances where the measures that are targeted, for instance, that it, okay, let me find that. Is Kendi is, you know, policy. It could well be the Australian federal policy has, this is what a lot of people in regional Queensland think, that it, that it disregards people living out here and doesn't value them and so on. They, they're quite resentful. About the fact. It, it could well be the policy feeds into it as well. But uh, I, don't, I think primarily, actually, it's more history. And so maybe I was too quick to respond because like, I agree. That's, that's kind of what I mean, like historical factors, but not necessarily the historical discriminatory factors between groups. It can be a whole bunch of things that might exacerbate that some groups are favored over others, but that they can be just geographical things or so on. But also cultural, Chris, I mean, one of the things that is really apparent in the area that I live is that the, the local people here who, again, I emphasize are, are white Australians, they, they just they usually multiply, like, you know, like more than 50% of Australians are first or generation immigrants. But people that I'm thinking of are like third generation or so. And one of the things you notice about the culture is that they don't value education and they often get married very young. You know, it's, it's kind of like the stereotypes of the American deep South, I suppose, uh, on how true they are. But, you know, like culture, culture does feed into it and it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with, with the people. And there, there can be historical reasons for the culture, exactly, right? Yeah. 
But again, your chicken and egging, and not you, I mean, in general, the interrelationship of culture and historical circumstances is interact. Yeah, exactly. It's a yin-yang type scenario. Yes, and there's a point where, actually, I think it's in the Ezra Klein interview where Ezra brings that up. I think one question somebody would have is, why can't it be both and? Like, why can't there be some differences in cultures or geographies that people come from or whatever it might be, and also that there is racist policy? What makes you certain that it is all one as opposed to some of one and some of the other? Well, I actually do think there's, there's racialized difference. And so, obviously, geneticists have found that uh, there's a such thing as ethnic ancestry. And, of course, each ethnic group has been racialized, of course, to a large extent. those. Okay, that was Ibram Candy speaking. Horatio says, mail-in voting caused by COVID lockdowns. It's given an advantage to Democrats who so will never be overcome by the Republicans. Unless a big shift happens, GOP is completely done for. There's absolutely no reason the Republicans cannot be as effective in mail-in voting as Democrats. The Trump campaign got a record turnout, right? They did a really good job at turning out their voters, just the Democrats did better. There's no inherent reason going forward that uh, Democrats will do better at securing mail-in voters than Republicans. Ethnic groups practice different cultures, but at the same time, there's no biological difference you know, via race. There's no behavioral difference. In other words, across cultures, people love, people lazy. I believe there are five states in in America that already have uh, mail-in voting. They don't have in-person voting. So there's nothing inherently anti-Republican about it. People hate, people laugh. They just do it in different ways. But ultimately, I think more specifically to your your point, just because there's difference, cultural and even ethnic, doesn't mean it's better or worse, or doesn't mean it's explaining away racial inequity because fundamentally and Ricardo, we never have received bro, that evidence. long time no talk how's it going pretty good man pretty good i've been meaning to call in for a couple of weeks you did a show a couple of weeks ago talking about i don't even remember what the big subject was but you shared a story about a guy who went to a job interview got the job and then like after the fact like felt like he needed to come clean about something in his past that has essentially got the job offer revoked, right? Yes. So I've been there and I tell you, I think you got it all wrong. I mean, you basically advise that the guy, you know, there's times for integrity and there's times for not. And I, I do understand your point and I make that compromise many times, you know, I've certainly made that compromise in my life, you know, it hasn't always like, immediately backfired but i tell you i you know right before right before i started talking to you back in 2017 18 maybe yeah. the the two years preceding that that like if we go back two years before we started talking i basically like flamed out of the corporate world in a bad way, like in a way that like, if I, if I told an employer what happened, I wouldn't get another job. Okay. So basically because of Adderall abuse and, uh, I spent 10 months unemployed and I started, you know, like, uh, maybe eight months into that. The first, the first six months, there's no way I could get a job. Like my brain was fucked up. You know, I just couldn't, I just wasn't ready. You know what I mean? I was recovering. And, uh, and then I got a couple of job interviews with like jobs that like really fit my skills and were very interesting, but I can recall one job interview I had where we were talking and like sort of inevitably my gap in employment came up. Right. And I thought I had a story about like, you know, like what I could say that would sort of gloss over that and move on. And as I was talking I talked myself into, um, 
I talked myself into a corner where like really I, I ended up like freezing up. It was a phone interview and just hanging up on the person and turning off my phone. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't. And it ended up like, I mean, I just broke down in tears. I mean, I was like, man, I'm so fucked. Like, I don't know what to say. I can't say it with, I can't lie that hard. You know what I mean? I'm just not capable of it. And, and that was like really rough. And it was like, and so, you know, my 30th birthday was like a couple weeks after that. And I remember like driving with my dad and sort of reflecting on the fact that I might have less money in my pocket at 30 than I did 20, <laughs> which was not good, man. Trust me. And I resolved that like, if I was going to get my shit back together, like I, I was in such a bad spot that like, really I needed to rebuild from the ground up. Meaning I needed somewhere to go at seven 30 in the morning, no matter what it paid, I needed to like get back on a routine, like get my shit back together. And so I called like my old boss that I worked construction in, in high school. And he gave me a job for like $15 an hour. Okay. I mean, this goes from like making nearly six figures to like $15 an hour. This was really bad, you know, but I was able to tell him exactly what was going on with me. Like, Hey man, I fucked up on drugs. I'm clean now, but like, and really all I need is like something to do. Like I will be helpful. You know, I just need a, I just need something to do, you know? Now, let's fast forward like seven years later. I'm making a ton of freaking money. And I work from my house and I work with all men and I don't deal with DEI. And I don't deal with bullshit, you know? And I, and like the relationship I have with my boss is like built on honesty, you know? But I had to take a major step back, man, because like I tell you that like first or second day that I was on that job site and we, you know, I got sent down to Chipotle to get lunch for everybody. And I am down in Georgetown, like M Street, like the power center of America. Okay. And I walk into the Chipotle and everybody's in their suits, you know, and I'm standing there covered in dust. And it's like, you all think I'm just some redneck or something. And it's like, I'm as educated, if not more educated than most of you. And I was I used to dress like you when I went to Chipotle, you know, and look how low I am, you know, and, but I'm so much happier. My marriage is so much better, man. Like it took time, you know, but like, there's no way that I would get to where I'm at today if I had to like, sort of like continue in the lie, you know, like if my new job was built on this, like, you know, and the anxiety of knowing that if they ever found out, like, I mean, that thought in the back of your head, like, that shit eats at you, man. Like, that's how you end up relapsing, right? <laughs> because you're not clean. You're not living clean. So I thought I would share that, that I think that, like, I do understand that sometimes, like, we we find ways to rationalize, like, compromising uh, the truth. For like expediency and practical concerns but you know in the long run i think it's a lot better to like be honest uh, on the on the other hand employers are not going to be fully honest with you either just as a prospective you know job applicant so you're dealing with a situation where both parties usually are representing things that are not 100 percent accurate 
I completely agree with you, but that's sort of their prerogative because they have the money and the power, you know, and you sort of have to like do what you got to do, you know, as the, as a young man for in particular. Um, so, and I, I don't think they owe every detail, but I, I just can assure you that, you know, and I remember like my wife was like very upset when she found out, like, I was like at the construction site instead of like in another job, but as I, and like now, and, and it took time, but now I just, I don't think I could actually like sort of the work-life balance slash income slash lifestyle situation that we've come to would not have worked out like the route that she wanted me to go, you know? So anyway. I, I think there's also a significant difference here between uh, honesty and full disclosure. So I, I believe that you should present yourself at a job interview in an honest way. I don't believe that you should necessarily employ full disclosure in a job interview. So, well, so here, I agree with you. But how do you like, okay, practically speaking, how do you honestly, without fully, like, why haven't you worked for 10 months? Like, what's the answer? Well, because I'm a fucking drug addict, you know, like I have really bad self-control problems or I got fired twice within six months because like I couldn't get out of bed before 1030 in the morning, you know, and I was flaky as fuck. Like, but trust me, that's not me anymore. Or like, <laughs> why aren't you working? I, You know, what do you say without lying? What do you say? Okay, so uh, what do you say depends on, on the context? Are you now... In the situation that you described, are you now capable of getting up and showing up to a regular job? If you're not, that's one thing. But if you are capable, if you have recovered from that addiction, then I don't see it as necessary to disclose in the job applicant process that you that you yes. uh, you know got fired. Then then I would start looking for a story where you can find a grain of truth in it, so that you can say it with sincerity. So. If you're a new father, then, you know, I just want to, my, my wife works and so it's up to me to take care of the kid or uh, we, we're building a home or remodeling a home and I just love remodeling. I'm working with my father, uh, remodeling my home. I, I can financially afford to take 10 months off work and just work with my father or work with my friend or I've always wanted to do uh, consulting or, I mean, there's something that you can find a grain of truth to if you needed to. I, I do hear you and that this was basically like the route that I was trying to go. But the problem was, was like, I just. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because like when I would say it, like I couldn't, I, I couldn't, mm -hmm. I could just, the feeling I had inside of me, like when I said that thing, like this is when I talked myself into the corner. I just reached this point in the conversation where, like, I just couldn't go forward. Like, I just couldn't do it. And I couldn't um, – because I also didn't believe – here's the thing. I realized, like, I wasn't actually the guy yet who was up in the morning. Like, yeah, I needed to, like, recover from, like, crashing off and, and adjust, getting my brain sort of back to, quote, normal or something more normal after what I was doing. But like, there's no evidence that like, I know how to get up in the morning because I haven't been doing it. You know, like I needed to go to the seven o'clock job. And honestly, like, 
there were fits and starts. Like I wasn't an ideal employee at first. It wasn't like, oh, I just walk in and I'm like the best version of myself. I've been years living like, you know, being irresponsible. Let's just put it that way. And, and it's taken time to get my shit together, you know? And, I, uh, yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, very individual. So in your circumstance, it sounds like what you did was, was the best thing for you. In the circumstance that I was describing, this was someone with a professional license. So I believe a, a license. Dude, therapist. I was a CPA. I'm a CPA. Okay. Like I had a license too. Like, and, and I did forego like a golden path. Okay. I walked yeah, but, off the golden path. But did your but, did your disclosure cost you your CPA license? Because in the story I told, by being fully disclosive, they lost their license. I have abandoned my license because I have no intention of ever being a CPA. I dropped my CPE. Like, I stopped doing CPE. Like, I let it go. So, I let it go because I never wanted to work like that again. Like, the feeling of sitting in the cubicle the corporate shit, the like, the, you know, the women, the women at the company meeting or the diverse meeting with no, you know, everybody's reaching their hands in the middle and there's not a single white hand. Okay. Like, um, I, I think now, like, where would I be? Like, what, what would it take me to like continue to be successful in that setting? Just eating so much shit. Dude, the money I'm making now, like where, like circumstances that have happened around me and like opportunities I've gotten, um, you know, like when we started talking in 2018, at that point, I was probably making, uh, with overtime, like 50 G's. Okay. Not much. We're like quadruple that now. And like, with like a lot more, like I, you know, I'm in charge of shit now. So like, I, I just look at it as like, yeah, I took a massive step back, and in the light, it was not clear how it was going to go for years, and my wife was not happy. You know what I mean? You know, women will constantly dissuade you from doing anything that's not like the most safest, like immediately visible in front of their face choice. Um, right. So th there are just so many factors here. See, you talk about integrity, but there's also the integrity of responsibility for for your family. So you your family as soon was able to swing your dramatic decrease yeah that's true it's true. Do, it's true to do your yeah. you got to indulge your integrity and your family, <laughs> your family was able to survive it because your wife subsidized your integrity sure other people in a similar situation would not be in a position where their wife could subsidize their integrity so you have to take the consequences of what you're saying and doing uh, in your family, to your family into consideration. So people in a different situation where someone else is not going to subsidize them being so filled with integrity yeah, may yeah. have to think of a, a different choice. Integrity is not just about something you say between you and a potential employer. It's also about how will this affect my family? How will this affect my children? How will this affect people who are counting on me to earn? Yeah, and what I would say is like I totally um, – I, I can – there, there's no question um, that she was not like some um, she was not like some stay-at-home mom with no marketable skills. You know what I mean? She was able to produce income, um, and she's still, I mean, a very successful person. Okay, there's no doubt about it. 
but I, I would just say that, I would just say that like the honest approach in my, has it's, it's, it's usually, and it's usually painful. Like it's, it's like it, the pain is, is immediate and the benefits are uncertain and they come later. And I've seen it like in this and in other aspects of my life, like even my relationship with my wife, like instead of like maybe, you know, avoiding certain subjects to quote, make peace. Um, like when things that are underneath the surface are like really addressed, like it's a really painful process. And it, there's a really like, you know, there's like the risk that, I don't know, maybe you break the relationship up or something, but what's built after that, like if you can get through it, like it's just so much better. And I guess what I'd say is I, over the course of the last seven years, I have become, I, I've just like, I'm, 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 I've been more honest than I, than maybe like the prior seven and my life is going in a better direction. Yeah, I mean, honesty is a good thing, but you, what you're also really talking, I think, more accurately is being more disclosive. You know, you can be honest without disclosing a whole bunch of challenging or damaging information. And you, you're siding with, you're disclosing more. Well, because there is lying by omission. Sometimes, like, keeping your mouth shut, like, I mean, dude, I mean, think about, like, the inner, I mean, relationships you've had where, you've swallowed you swallowed shit or kept your mouth shut because maybe you thought somebody would like take you you know it would like lead to a conflict that you didn't really want because you cared about the person or something and then and then like at the end of the day maybe like you do it finally like boils out right like it pops out like how you really feel and their reaction's not nearly as bad as you thought it was you know or or like if you had maybe said it sooner, you could save yourself some real heartache. Like I said, it's like a feeling in the back of your head, that anxiety that like the things that aren't being taken care, care of that like cause people to escape into addiction. Like I can think of, you know, time, you know, when I struggle with porn, there's times like there's something at work that I need to do or something like some bill I need to pay or like some doctor's appointment I need to make that I keep putting off and it's like it to like shut that voice up or like consume the thing that like it you know the the addicted the addiction whatever it is you know and so I feel like if I had gone into that career and not like based off the even if, with a grain of truth in it like it would always be back in the back of my mind and like that kind of living that way is like what makes you fall off the wagon you know, it's interesting because, I mean, you're all about 12 steps and stuff. It's like, I mean, they they are all about, like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think that's over the top. Like, let me go, I'm going to go call my girlfriend from high school and be like, hey, just so you know, I cheated on you at a party one time or something, like, because I need to make amends because I was a drinker. Like, I don't know. That's kind of. Well, the anecdote I was, I was giving you was from a 12-step context, but w the, the amount you disclose it's usually something you talk about with people with more recovery than yourself because it's not automatically it's not automatically the right thing for you to disclose everything to everyone for example it can cause a lot of you know needless pain and, and disruption to your life and to other people to disclose certain things that you 
like let's say you killed someone um you know i don't think people in your life would be better off learning about that yeah but or if you were cheating you you cheated on a bunch of ex-girlfriends i don't think you should call them up and apologize for, for cheating on them you would just you would get you would get direction from pretty much any sponsor anyone with recovery to not call up people and cause them needless harm and and you you matter too so a lot of people they get recovery or they they find they seize on some virtue such as integrity and then yeah. they just want to go 100% full bore without respect to how it's going to affect them and other people and having integrity and decency meaning you have to take yourself and other people into account that's part of integrity so telling your spouse that you've had sex with a best friend which she did not know about that may not necessarily be in everyone's best interests so people often just want to start disclosing everything but that sometimes is not the the best thing to do for other people and for yourself you can you can needlessly destroy people with needless disclosure that there has sure. to be some consideration for for other people and for yourself it's not so, it's like the constitution is not a death warrant honesty and disclosure yeah. is not a death warrant either like you, you sure, make amends to drug dealers for example i'll just finish this point you, yeah. you in, in 12 steps you often people will need to make amends to a drug dealer but you don't go meet them alone in a dark alley you take big people from the program with you you know you meet them at a starbucks and you repay them the money that you owe them pass yeah so the convert i i feel like there's like something in that that's like it's the red pill it's the convert the con the converts behavioral pattern i mean you're a convert i would mm -hmm. say you probably would you not say that in those first however many years you were like you were clinging to certain even if the principle is Judaism or like some aspects of it that you found so transformative in your own life and you want to proselytize that to others, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. because it's like, Oh my gosh, like my eyes are open. I see now. Right. Yes. And like, I want you to be able to see, cause I care about you, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that that's like, that's human nature. Like I, I think that, yeah, I mean, It's interesting, like, is in some ways, like, how that's repulsive to everybody around you is kind of, like, part of the consequence of your lifestyle before that conversion or part of, like, I, I don't know, man. It's, it's, like, I can see how that looks foolish to the rest, you know, to the rest of us who are, like, a cradle Catholic, like, some convert is, like, a fucking weirdo. You know what I mean? Because they're almost, like, more fundamental than the person that lives it. But, of course, like, all of us are just so damn complacent in our own lives. Like and people also, I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. You know, just to bring back to like your subject of the day, I was listening to you talk about the guy um, or how, how Christian nationalists like tend not to go to church, you know, and how it's almost kind of like, they get like politicized, like you leave church and you get politicized because church is really not that political of a place, you know? Um, I mean, the rainbow churches are, but they're not really churches, but, but like, um, and so, and they certainly aren't like, uh, like party politic 
at least like the white churches I've been to. Maybe black churches are different. But um, I feel like when you leave the church, you're sort of like, you're, you're Christian, like, it's like that energy that you mentioned, like, typically goes into charity, right? Or like your community gets, like, harnessed by politics. Right, you become politicized yes. in the yes. same way that like secular Jews like are politi- are are political, right? I yeah. would say more so than the religious ones. Yeah, like the Haredi. I mean, they have like the local thing, like they want to dominate and get their welfare and stuff like that. But I, I would imagine they're not like as caught up in like Donald Trump versus Joe Biden in the way that like the secular ones are. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's a void when people leave religion that often gets filled by politics. Yeah, so it's like Christian, the rise of Christian national, you know, because, you know, gosh, as much as like, in some ways, it, it really defines my mindset, I do find myself like, going, I mean, is this really true? Like, the, you know, the idea that like, we're going to find Christ through like politics is a joke. It's a joke. You know, it's not going to make the world a better place. You know what I mean? I don't know. Like, it's just a twisting of it, you know, and it's, and it's like easily captured by other people. Like, you know, the government has really, and I think we see this with like the ADL thing. Like, who does the ADL speak for? And who's going to bear the consequences of the ADL's actions, right? Like, ADL, you know, not to, it, it's like, I'm sure that like in Germany at one point, there was like certain people speaking for Jews that basically did not help Jews stay out of concentration camps. And they themselves were not the ones that went. And like, you know, ADLs just, you know, it's big Jew versus little Jew. You've made this point many times. And I think like, you know, big Christ versus little Christ. I don't think big Christ has anything to do with and actually, I've become, like, really, I mean, it's been in, on my mind for years, but I really do think, like, Donald Trump and Elon Musk and Marjorie Taylor Greene, like, if anybody's the Antichrist, it's, like, these characters who, like, it's not going to be the people, like, explicitly attacking Christians that are actually the Antichrist. It'll be the people manipulating and like cloaking themselves in it. Well, I mean, you're, you're hitting on many themes there, but one is disillusionment. And I think we, we get disillusioned when we put more into something than it can handle. So if we think that uh, moving American politics in a more Christian nationalist direction is going to be some kind of messianic change for life in, in America, no, it's not. It might incrementally make certain things better and it might have some negative effects as well but it's not going to be the the ultimate salvation so people i think get disillusioned with politics because they put you know an exaggerated amount of emphasis on politics if they if they had a more sober perspective on politics they they'd recognize the limitations of the political yeah and there's also this like sort of sort of this like old testament mindset like that you know is cited and it's definitely part of the bible but 
I don't think that vengeful, like, go about, like, destroy your enemies. I mean, that's not Christ's message. It's just really not. You know? And I think that, like, when you go down that road, you end up destroying yourself. So and I think that's what Colonial, you know, Colonial, I saw this, like, really interesting tweet today where the guy, it was basically saying, like, someone said, like, oh, Israel is, like, the last bastion of European, like, colonial spirit, right? And someone commented, like, no, like, European colonization was, like, this, like, post-Reformation, like, Judaizing of the West. So, like, our colonialism was actually this, like, Jewish energy. I, or I should say, let's, I mean, to me, it's, like, Old Testament energy, like, going into the Promised Land, taking it for yourself, destroying your enemies. It's actually like been the downfall of Europeans. I mean, seriously, like the moral frame the moral frame is such that because of colonialism, now all of our countries are have I mean the demographic replacement has happened. Like it's over. Like we got colonized. Like we destroyed ourselves. For what? For like spices? Holy shit. Did you see did you see the movie Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, many times. Okay, remember the scene where the German soldier pleads for his life and they let him, yeah. let him go free? And then he comes back and kills one of them. So th- there's a time and a place to kill your enemy and not let him go free. And there's a time and a place not to. And you don't want to be wrong. Yeah, but I mean, that's also like propaganda, right? Like that no, that's also like, real you life. You can make that choice. You can make, uh, you can make, I, could, I could write that story many ways. Right, like no, but it reflects things that go on in real life. Sometimes letting your enemy goes free, go free, you know, costs you your life. Yeah, but there's like many times in history where like magnet, like the guy's only you know he hangs on, he has like effective rulership because he is like magnanimous. Yes, what you like that's how you unite afterwards. Like it's complicated. It depends on the situation. Yeah, it's a situation. Whether that. Whether, you know, I could write that story where, like, the guy's in a tight spot later and the German guy's got him by the balls, but because you let him go, he let you go. You know what I mean? Like, I could write that, too. And that would also be real life. Like, the reciprocity across, like, the, you know, inhumanity of this battlefield. Um, That is also true. So, it's interesting, though, because, like, I think that, I think that um, I think there's a difference in the Jewish and Christian worldview when it comes to, to like that specific thing. Like, what do you do with your enemies? What do you do yeah. with those who want you? Like, where does where's the role of vengeance? And you know, I don't know if we are. I think I mentioned this at the time, but like, what did Kanye say about um, about? Christians getting sucked into like Jewish vengeance against Germans, like against Hitler. Like that's not our religion to like hold to be like, you know, this forever blood debt against uh, uh, Hitler and the Germans. I think Jews do have that. Like Hitler yes. is the eternal enemy. Yes. I mean, and, like, Malik, he must Malik, be destroyed. Yeah. Malik is the eternal enemy. I mean, that's for 3000 years. Uh, the Torah commands that you shall blot out Amalek. Never forget what Amalek did to you. So Hitler's just a continuation of 
the various Amalekites in Jewish history. Right. And that they just have to be destroyed and like, yes, you know, so which is like genocide or whatever word you want to put on it. But like, that is not Christ's message. <laughs> and I think that's like very clear. So um, I think that, you know, the great thing about the Luke Ford show is it helped. I, I think it's like helped educate a lot of people about the differences between Jews and Christians and people can do with that what they want. But I think it's important that everybody not be ignorant <laughs> about those differences. Now, I'm curious back to your 2017 situation. Did you have people in your life that you could talk this over with? Or did you make all these decisions on your own pretty much? You mean like when to go, like what job yeah. to get? Yeah, how to approach a job interview, what, what job to take. Because I'd like to think there's one thing that we could agree on, that anyone finds themselves in a situation like what you described, that they have people in their life that they can talk to about because the individual alone does not make good decisions when compared to having people that he can talk things over with. I would think that nobody, no one, see, no one really understood like how I felt inside my own head about like, you know, what does it mean to be addicted to this drug? Like, why is it like that you feel like, you know, what does it mean to be four or five, six months of like, not like not be able to like plan to be on an hour. You know what I mean? Like that all you're capable of doing is like sort of what's right in front of you. Um, and um, so no one really understood that I felt like I was going to fail. And you know what? Honestly, let's dude, you know what? I, I've totally forgotten about this, but like there's another like very, Clear parallel, like if I go back another, um, let's see, 20, 2000, if I go back another like eight, nine years before this, when I got kicked out of college my first semester for, or like halfway through my second semester, I got kicked out because I was like, got caught with like weed in my dorm, okay? Um, and so I got suspended for a semester. So I couldn't come back for like a year. And in the meantime, like, you know, I had to show that I was, like, working on my problems. So I was going to this, like, group class for um, addiction. And it was, like, mostly DUI people who were, like, being put through the thing. And, of course, like, there's some random Spanish guy in there that gives me, like, an ounce of weed for no reason. I don't even know what the deal was. Like, from the class, like, I was still smoking weed, okay? And it came time, and, like, I worked that year. I was working for the construction company I work for now, like, I come back making $9 an hour and like had paid my dad back the $10,000 for the semester. So he would send me to school again. I got all my paperwork. They accepted me back. And I decided, I said, dad, I can't go back. I was like, I know that if I go back there, I'm going to get kicked out again. Or I'm going to get like D's. Like, I'm just, I can't do it. So I went to community college and, and like after a little bit of, you know, it took me about a year to like get it together when basically my dad cut, cut me off and I had to start paying for college myself. I got straight A's the rest of the way, man. I graduated with honors uh, from a good business school. I got a great job. But like, if I had gone back there, it, because everybody thought I should go back, like, why would you not go back? Like you can go back to college. Like they'll let you back in. 
it's like no i can't do it because i'm not you know i'm not re- i'm not i'm not able you know and like it's led me to where i am now man i got a good life you know i got a lot of cousins uh i got a lot of cousins i'm definitely the most well off like between me and my wife and i got great kids and i've done a lot of fucked up shit but i feel like you know I fall off, you know, I don't know. I right, so when I talked about it, it would have been good if you had people in your situation had people to talk with. I mean, people who have experience with Adderall addiction. So people who don't have experience with Adderall addiction aren't going to be much help to you. It's true. It's true. I, yeah, I mean, it kind of happened after the fact, but I, like sort of after I started working and um, you know after I left accounting and decided to go work at the construction company was that I had a cousin who like dealt with addiction like a second cousin or my dad's cousin like an older older generation and she told me and this is like the thing I've like hung on to and like uh, passed on to other people who have I know have dealt with this is that you can't be 110% of yourself. Like, you know, this Adderall makes you feel like you can be 110% of yourself. But, like, that's not, that doesn't last. That, like, all you can be is 100% of yourself. Like, and being okay with that, like, being okay with, like, that you can't get it done, you know? And it applies to so many areas of life. Like, all the hobbies you wish you had, the skills you wish you had the work that you wish, you know, you, you had gotten done or you could do more, um, you could be better, you could be stronger or whatever, you could be healthier. And it's like, you know, you just, you gotta be, you gotta be comfortable with yourself, you know? And, and that's like, it's, it's helped me stay clean. Cause it's like, yeah, there's times like I deal with like certain deadlines at work, certain pressures where, you know, I really wish I could, could get my hands on some of that stuff to like push through it. But, but then I go, you know what? If I, like, I just can't. And I, I, I just, I need to deal with the consequences of that or, or approach work, or approach these situations differently in the future so that I don't get put into corners where like I need to boost myself up. Like that, you know? And, um, but like I said, man, most people don't, most people will say, I think what you say, which is like, you know, do what you need to do to get ahead and like. No, no, no. I didn't say. It's really like a suggestion. No, no, I didn't say do what you need to do to stay ahead. said that if you want to talk about integrity, like consider the consequences for the people around you, such as your family, as well as yourself. And that doesn't mean that you need to operate with full disclosure. I never said do what you need to do. But you should be talking to other people who are in a similar situation as well, you have. How did you? How are you not saying? Yeah, but how are you not saying that? I mean, you are saying like the basically the truth is when it's inconvenient that it can go out the window. At times, there are higher values than the truth, and, and you believe that too. You you don't disclose one hundred percent of everything to everyone you encounter. Truth is one of a, of many values. If yeah, but got... truth isn't like my. But but see, truth is not like my opinion of the hat you're wearing, right? Like I think your hat is stupid. It crosses my mind. I don't share it. But like that's not the truth, right? But like, 
you didn't ask me what I think of your hat. You know what I mean? No, no, I'm talking about the most embarrassing things that we've ever done. You don't owe that to everyone you meet to list after them the most embarrassing things you've ever done. Sure, sure. But, like, I think, like, if if someone asks you, uh, and you don't always... You don't owe everyone 100% disclosure. Like, I I, I haven't told you I I agree with you that that people can't, like, if they can't, like, see it, like, if it's not, like, relevant or it doesn't come up, like... You're, you don't owe, like, let me reveal to you things that you never would have known if I didn't choose to tell you right now. Now, like, you know, under the cloak of anonymity in this conversation on YouTube and, like, the the history of the conversations that we've had together, like, I don't, it doesn't, and I probably have shared, like, but all of that in, like, different stories before anyway, I don't, you know, I feel comfortable to share that in this context. In the context of an employer, yeah, I'm not telling you about what happened in college. But, like, if you're asking me about, like, why I haven't worked in the last 10 months, I just, for what it, whether it's my conscience or something, I just couldn't, like, I couldn't do it without, like, feeling, like, you feel, you know, the feeling of feeling transparent, like, people can see through your life. Yes. And then, like, that feeling is, like, projects out, and that's when they know they can't trust you. Like, they, people see it. People see that reaction. And, like, the, the pathological liar can, like, shield that, and I don't have that. So, so I'll, I'll give you another example. I'm very public, you know, sex and love addict. Uh, you know, been in, in recovery sobriety for about uh, 11 years. Uh, if I share that with someone in the workplace, there, there are a lot of people who will – Use that against me. Sure. Agree. I agree with you. I think that, like, did they ask you about if you beat off last night? You know what I'm saying? Like, your relationship with beating off? No. So you don't bring it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, like, if you were getting in a relationship with a woman. Oh, yeah. But if I was if the first, first date. Like, in that context. In yeah. that context. Yes. That you would, disclose. You would. Yes. So what I'm saying is like, in an, yes, <laughs> my employment history is relevant to my employer, right? It's not full disclosure to, or it's not over disclosure to need to reckon with the truth of, of that situation. Like, you know, my CV has a blemish, you know, and, and I can lie about it and hope no one ever finds out and like basically like carry that around with me, you know, that that guilt and that because it's a it's a moving forward situation like my fidelity to my high school girlfriend or something is irrelevant to the future therefore it doesn't need to be like go back and address now if i was like trying to become a recovering alcoholic and i was like actively having an affair with my wife's best friend like actively or something like that i mean you got to deal with that or you're never going to get clean now you showed your wife with your best friend 20 years ago, like you kissed at a party one time and that woman's like dead or something. And I, you know, disclosure in that case, like how does that help you move forward? I, I don't, you know, maybe I, I can see less of a case, but you can't live. You can't continue to like live in your sin. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can't stay there. So I, I feel like, I feel like in this context of like how, you know, what do you owe your employer? I think like, 
I did things in my career that shut me out from that path. Like I fucked it up and I can like hope a lie will be enough of a band-aid to like keep it alive, but it would not be like a healthy, strong foundation for advancing through that career. And the one that I have now, while it's a different career path and has like different pros and cons, um, I, it is on a solid foundation. Nobody cares about things that happened when I was an accountant. You know what I mean? No one cares. It doesn't come up. It's not relevant. So I don't tell anybody. I mean, other than my boss, who's a family friend, but anyway. How many bosses who are alcoholics do you think disclose that to prospective job applicants? Virtually none. Bosses sure. don't disclose their own addictions to potential job applicants. But they're bosses. Like, bosses and employees are not equal in, no, in but many why, regards. Why do you owe more to a potential employer than a potential employer owes you? I, I, don't, see, I don't see potential employers telling potential employees about their own addiction history. You know, I feel like it's like the relationship between father and son. Like, the father has his sins right like every father is not perfect right but he the son you hold the son to standards it's standards of behavior that we might falter to like hold ourselves to and the son can like fixate on the hypocrisy of his father or understand that like just because his father's not living up to these ideals don't mean the ideals aren't good in and of themselves like should be honest like just because your employer's not doesn't mean you shouldn't be because it's about your like your the health of your mind and soul and career and things and like <clears throat> just because your dad falls short or your boss falls short doesn't like excuse you well i mean it, it virtually never happens that a potential employer discloses to a job applicant the, uh, the employer's history with, with addiction. It, it virtually never happens. So I, I would see in this context of, of applying for a job, just as the boss and his supervisors are not going to disclose to a job applicant their own histories of addiction, why would the job applicant feel a necessity to disclose that to potential employers and, unless there's no way of going forward w without it? So I would assume that a potential employee could <coughs> perhaps talk about a depression or talk about you know, all sorts of reasons. I just don't see necessarily. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess what I'd say is like I was not so far gone that like I couldn't like the guilt just got to me, man. I don't know. And and it also overcame me. Uh, and bosses... so like, what do you do with that? Like, is that good? Is that bad? Like, do I need to? Is that patholo pathological? Uh, you know, I don't think you can pathologize that, man. Like. Okay, so I couldn't, like, compartmentalize the lie, you know. Right, that's like... I couldn't compartmentalize having... it. That guy that you, that, that felt like he couldn't deal with it, man. He couldn't, he couldn't deal with it. And, like, you know what? The alternative to say, like, oh, he should have done X, Y, and Z, like, that's not what he could have done. Because he couldn't have been, think about, like, how, if it was eating him, think about it, man. Like, he ate him up so much that he had to say that. Like, how could he keep that inside? He couldn't do it. If you felt that way about something, it would eat you up. And how often have you been betrayed by women who said, oh, you know, I, 
I recognize that I committed to uh, X, Y, Z, but now I feel strongly in a certain way. So I, I need to go do what I need to do, you know, completely violating every understanding that you've, you've had together. No, they haven't People... actually. I've more, I, that really hasn't happened to me, to be honest. Um, a couple of times it hurts, but I, I always said like I did that way more than they did. So, um, it's just, I guess like the, the times that like, okay, like I can think of one girl, one girl in college that like, I, that like kind of, well, let's just say I liked her more than she liked me. You know what I mean? Or we were kind of yes. in a relationship, but I, I was, uh, more, you know, I, she was still looking for her husband. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, uh, she eventually found him like one day, like she went home for Christmas break and she ended up marrying that guy. And it's like, you know, I guess like I look at it as like, I had, I too have done that to women and it's also natural. And like, you know, I just, uh, here's, here's another thing, the way I'm thinking about this, I think one measure of maturity is how much stress you can handle without lashing out at yourself and others. So some of what you're talking about, I think, is absolutely the path of integrity. I think a lot of what you're talking about as well is simply people who have not developed the maturity to deal with stress without lashing out at themselves or others, such as by full disclosure. So I think some situations you're just talking about people who can't deal with the anxiety and so they want to disclose, 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 even if it wrecks themselves and other people. And what, what really needs to happen is the person needs, needs a path to reduce their anxiety so that they can make better decisions. And so just because one overwhelmingly wants to get rid of an anxiety uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you should do the first thing that pops into your head. But I, I wonder if it's like, it's sort of this like conversion period where like you basically have so much built up that you do need to like sort of clean house before you can like. Yeah, that's why you should clean. clean house to a sponsor or to someone with more experience in a particular area. You should be absolutely fully disclosive to somebody or to a community of people. And you should not necessarily take it on your own shoulders to unilaterally make decisions on these you know, nuclear issues. You should absolutely get clean with certain people, you know? Yeah, who, that's who... great. It, no, that's, I think that that is like, I think that's right. So, so who did I have in that circumstance? It felt like nobody, because like I said, like no one could really relate. Um, and like I've had experience, I mean, I guess like I ended up, I started going to this thing called, um, Celebrate Recovery. It's mm -hmm. like a network. They, they're in, I'm sure, have you heard of it? I'm not sure. Okay, well, it's like a network, you know, they, they basically might be like Thursday nights, hosted at a bunch of, I've seen them at like evangelical churches. Like Thursday nights, like an AA meeting. We go, there's like a little worship service for like 15 minutes, and then we go, we talk for an hour, like about shit we're dealing with. Like go around the circle, like what's going on, you know? And you know, I did it. I did it because my mom begged me to do it. And how much did it help? 
really kind of unclear. I mean, I think it did help. I I couldn't put my finger on it, you know. Um, and in some ways, like the boss that I have now, like it was a figure who, like, when I came to him for a job, it was not like, here, give me, I need a career. It was like, dude, I just need something for like a few weeks to like get me on a schedule. Like, I would honestly do it for free. He, you know, offered me, you know, basically a token amount of money, right? And, um, and then it just like, I was just useful, you know what I mean? It just kind of like inertia, like it just kind of took off, you know, and we had that relationship, but, you know, I don't think that I would ever, (coughs) what would I do if I had like inevitably to find a job, like had to go out outside of the, the, the network of family or family like connections. I think well, I would have I... eventually like had to lie, man. You know what I mean? Or I couldn't have done it the way I did it because no employer would take you if you disclosed that you had like a drug problem. Like, but just well, there's alternatives. just many applicants for jobs. <laughs> yeah, alternatives to what you did is to have a therapist or to be in a a twelve step program or a men's group, and it would have been most helpful if you had people who had the very thing that you were struggling with, such as Adderall addiction. So there are a ton of, I'm sure, 12-step people and 12-step programs that, you know, deal with Adderall addiction. And so you can talk to people who've recovered from an Adderall addiction and you can be fully disclosive to them and within that circle and then get experience, strength, and hope from them on, you know, building your life back up. Yeah. Yeah. And... Yeah, man. And it's something I would just say to like anybody who might ever listen to this is like, even when things seem like really dark, like they really do turn around and, and time flies and where you think like your life is ruined, like it's really not. And, uh, and, and it doesn't happen overnight and it's not perfect, but like, don't give up. Cause I had, dude, I have a neighbor who earlier this week, I mean, she's four, like, give or take a year on like late thirties. Okay. Eight year old and 11 year old. They went to school. They came home. She was not alive anymore. Wow. And it's just like, this is a woman that like I've talked to many times over the years, like during COVID, like hours, like watching the kids got to know her and had no idea, you know? And so Yeah, well, I, mean, I, it, it helps I gotta get some stuff okay. done. Yep. Well, here, say what you're gonna say. Say what you're I was say. just gonna say, yeah, it's like the Billy Joel song, "You're Only Human," but it really helps. What's even better than believing that it gets better is to see concrete examples of people all around you in your social circle, uh, in your recovery circle, whose lives have gotten better and they have recovered from the very thing that has befell you. So, is that why you hang around, stay around these circles? Because I mean, I guess like new guys yeah. do need you. Yeah. Yeah. I and I feel I get strong from feeling, you know, helpful to other people who have similar problems that I've struggled with. So it's a a mutually reinforcing thing. They get help from me and I get help from helping them. So by my desire to be helpful to them, that helps keep me on the right track. Yeah. Okay, bro. Thanks. All right, man. It was great talking to you. Take care, bro. Bye-bye. 
Okay, play a little bit more here from Ibrahim X. Kendi. Yeah, look, I'm probably putting words in Kendi's mouth here, but I think from his point of view, the things that we were mentioning, history and culture and geography or whatever, they're all still unfair. You know, like, and I'm going to stick with this training example to keep it out of the American context. But I think he would say, look, yes, you can give me lots of explanations for why a kid growing up in the country here is going to get is going to have a bad education and not learn very much money and just be essentially marginalized in various ways. And you can say it's, it's all complicated due to history and, and so on. But ultimately, um, if, if that person had been born in uh, metropolitan Melbourne, they'd be doing a lot better, statistically speaking. And that's unfair. So, yeah, like, I, I don't think that's a crazy point of view. I'm not really sure what my take would be. What do you think? Well, so I think Kendi, in a lot of respects, I think he's just a very strong left-wing progressive person, right? Arguing for those perspectives. And that entails a very strong strain of cultural relativism and also a very strong skepticism about things related to biological inheritance, even within families. Let, let me let me play a clip to just to illustrate what I'm talking about. And, and you know, I'm a, I'm a new father and I have a three-year-old and, and I like to imagine that her behavioral characteristics that I sort of passed that to her genetically, right, as many parents do, even though we have no evidence for that. And we certainly don't have any evidence for that at a group level. In other words, if you're a German, you, you're going to behave this way. Or if you're Nigerian, you're going to behave this way. Or if you're African-American, you're going to behave this way. And it's easy for us to state that, yes, races behave this way. And that is the reason why they have more, because they are more or because they are less. It's, and, and that just, it, it, it simply explains the world. It explains the inequality. And like you said, we don't have to do anything. Yeah. So I agree with his point there that, you know, we don't have evidence for like a German phenotype and especially not a racial one across the socially constructed vast amalgamation of things which get lumped in under like black or Asian. And, and so on that point, he's right. But I do think that isn't the only option when you're talking about cultural differences that it derives mm, from that okay. ground. Like I live in Japan. I'm originally from Northern Ireland. There's very clear social differences here, cultural values that are different. And whereas he said it doesn't lead to behavioral differences, it does. There are clear behavioral differences in what's expected in the social relationships that people form. And yes, fundamentally, we're all people. We're all humans. We all eat and love and laugh. And like. And it's wrong. I, I should go about saying that putting people into racial hierarchies is just an injustice, a moral injustice against humanity. But I think that you don't need to do that in order to acknowledge that cultures differ, that the values that they inculcate can be different. And this can lead to like societies which value different things. Like, you know, I don't want to, there's, there's plenty of nice things about Japan, like tons. But for example, the position of women in Japanese society, like on cross-country metrics, looking at gender disparity in the treatment of women, Japan does terrible compared to most developed countries. And that's related to cultural values. And it isn't saying that there's something inherent to like Japanese biologically that they would do that, but not acknowledging that the system, like the cultural system is different and that it can lead to outcomes which are indeed, yes, worse or better. I think that goes too far into like the extreme of cultural relativism. And I, I don't think allowing for that entails that you have to bring in essentialized racial differences. Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, I agree with Gendi that, uh, that there's no evidence at a group or race level of biological differences in behavior. Um, but I think there's a lot of good evidence for at, at an individual level. Yeah, in terms of in terms of essentially children being somewhat predisposed to be like their parents is is is, is pretty strong. Um, okay, let's get a little bit more of decoding the gurus here, analyzing Ibrahim X. Kendi, your somewhat totalitarian perspective at this moment, based on the historical circumstance. Like, yeah, no, I, I look, I agree. Obviously, that's the main thing he's concerned with in terms of equalizing <laughs> that. But, but you're not, you're I'm, not. Not saying, I'm not saying the man who wrote Anti-Racist Baby is not concerned with race, right? But <laughs> yes. um, what I am saying is that when you actually look at his sort of theoretical machinery, his you know, intellectual framework that goes into explaining 
those dis- racial discrepancies and differences and how to ameliorate them. It's, it's, standard, it's standard socialism. Would you agree? I would agree. But that actually takes me to one of the last points before we get to our wrap-ups. Unless, unless you have more to say, in which case just like continue on. But the, uh, <laughs> so one of the criticisms of Candy that we will be complaining about if we don't address, and he doesn't talk about it in these talks that we looked at, but I think he is like a little bit prone to Twittering hot takes and that kind of thing, but there's there's a lot of people who are on the opposing front for him, him, John McWhorter, for example, has not been covering himself with glory on Twitter recently. But so he has suggested that there should be an amendment to the US Constitution and that they should establish a department of anti-racism, as he describes it, comprised of formally trained experts on racism and no political appointees. DOA would be responsible for pre-clearing all local, state, and federal public policies to ensure they won't yield racial inequality, monitor those policies, investigate private racist policies when racial inequity surfaces, and monitor public officials for expression of racist ideas. Now, uh, people did highlight this idea, and their argument is that this is close to describing a totalitarian apparatus that is above all democratic areas of the state, which has a positive goal, yes, but, you know, lots of things which end up totalitarian carry within them fundamental. Their idea is good. It's the execution that is the problem. And if you have a, a department which is above all regulations, can police what people are thinking? And has it, really... it, doesn't sound, it doesn't sound great, does it? I mean, honestly. No, and, you know, the, the people pointing this out said, if this was a conservative writer who was arguing for something similar related to, I don't know, like valuing American traditionalism or something, people would very quickly say, that's fascism or that's close to fascism. And I don't think that Kendi, like, I don't think that's a fair thing because I don't think he's going to instigate like an anti-racist fascist state if he had the choice. I think it's more, this is my take and this might be me, you know, being overly kind, but that that's just like a bad suggestion of an academic who is like fixating on policy and is thinking of an impractical wonky solution that, that could have really negative consequences if it actually came to pass. And like, so I think it's partly just a hot take that deserves criticism. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a great idea to me. Here's a little bit more analysis. Sensical culture wars stuff that goes on. Um, So that would have been best avoided. I guess my other criticism is that he implicitly does work in a categorical kind of way. So, you know, in classifying behaviors or policies as racist or anti-racist, it it just flattens the differing degrees. And as we talked about, there are some policies that are going to be virtually neutral in terms of how the degree to which they contribute towards or fight against racial equality. And that's okay. And that goes along with my other issue, which is that it, you know, he's kind of like a single issue person. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of people who are single issues. You can talk to environmentalists, for instance, who are absolutely focused on environmental issues. All they care about is fixing the environment, something that I'm personally very passionate about and very sympathetic to. But, you know, that is a unidimensional focus. And there are other things apart from the environment that are important. And just like there are other things apart from racial equality that are important. It doesn't mean that those things aren't important. It just means that there are other things that are important too. So when you talk about categorizing things as racist or anti-racist, implicit in that is the idea that anti-racist policies are always good and racist policies are always bad. Whereas just like with environmental issues or um, income inequality or health and well-being, you know, it's, it's multidimensional. We're trying to optimize things for people in a, in a multidimensional way. So there are, um, we can have other focuses as well. So those aside, you know, I, I don't mind where he's coming from at all. I quite like it. Even though his definition of racism is being about policies and being about... Okay, a little more critical analysis coming up here. It was entertaining and it was easy because he is very clear and he makes sense. So it's, he's easy to understand. And whether you're agreeing with him or disagreeing with him, it's, he's good in that respect. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's all the more shocking because he's black. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. That's a joke. That's a joke. It's a good joke. It's a very good joke. You should end on that. You should end on that. And then just, that's, that's it. Nothing else. <laughs> yeah. That, that, I don't have the balls. <laughs> but I might keep it in. I might keep it in. But we, we have some. Li- 
Okay. All right. That'll, that'll do it. Take care. Bye-bye.